Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to Perf Web 24, day two, part four of our series on everything ECMO. And so I'd like to welcome you here, and let me go ahead and get through these uh, talking points that I have to get through. First, uh, we have all of the social media platforms. We have, of course, you see there, YouTube, Facebook, and the Twitter that you can um, you know, be following us on or watching the program through. Please do us a favor and on YouTube, subscribe. It's very important to us. We have 719, we're desperately trying to get to 1,000. So if you can subscribe to our channel, we would be so appreciative of that. Um, and also, and follow us and uh, ask for updates too. There's a, a, a notification button, so make sure you do that. Also, uh, on Facebook, like us and share us, and share, 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 okay? Can't ask you to do that enough. And also on the Twitter, make sure that you uh, follow us on that and also share there as well. So we would be very appreciative of you to do that, and thank you very much. That's the end of my opening remarks for this morning. I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our panel now, and our panelists immediately to my right, of course, coming our second time, thank you so mm -hmm. much is Kimberly Sperlin. She is a BSN, MSN, working on your master's, mm -hmm. and currently, what is your, what is your role again? You, you, you have a specific role. You used to be- Clinical the, coordinator. You're a clinical coordinator, that's mm -hmm. right, at the ICU of a major community hospital here, a level two trauma center yes. here in the Houston area. Tammy uh, Sparacino, Tammy Lee Sparacino, CCP, perfusionist, that graduated from Texas Heart in 2003. She was with us last night, as you may recall. She's back with us today, uh, and she's gonna be part of our esteemed panel. Kimberly's gonna be talking on anticoagulation and uh, ECMO, and uh, Tammy, and then next to her is uh, uh, Chris Lusby. I said it right for the first time, because I usually time. say Lusby. Chris Lusby, he is currently with the Heart Failure Group at uh, Memorial Hermann cool. uh, TMC and uh, he has a tremendous amount of uh, ECMO experience. They do a lot of ECMO down there, certainly more than we do. Um, and I consider myself to have a fair, fairly large amount of ECMO, but you have a lot more than I do. So you do a lot of it. Right. Uh, in fact, Chris worked last night taking care of the patient. We had a heck of a story, okay? When did, when did you graduate from, from uh, THI? 2010. 2010, right. So in really in nine years, you're a nine year vet. Um, but for a nine-year veteran, you have probably 25 years worth of experience only because of where you've been working. And I mean, I gotta say that, my hat's off to you in that regard. You're a pretty bright guy. Um, although, you know, maybe your choice of employment wasn't such a smart idea, but you're doing great otherwise. Yeah. But we've had a heck of a time. You know, yesterday, we had a really rough time. There was a 26-year-old, 27-week pregnant uh, lady who had uh, severe preeclampsia and uh, they needed to uh, uh, do an emergency C-section and she was in fulminant pulmonary edema and they uh, got the baby out. Of course, that usually makes them better, but they couldn't oxygenate her, so they put her on VV ECMO and uh, she's really a lot better. And, and of course, that disrupted our program last night because Patrick was there managing that case while he did his talk. Uh, one of the other perfusionists kind of covered for him while, so he could do that. And then you were with the patient all last night. Yeah. Um, how's the patient doing? 
Uh, fantastic. Weighing down to minimal settings uh, should come off to the, tomorrow or the next day. Tomorrow or the next day, that's good. So real safe, you know, which is Absolutely. which is why we're in this business. It was the right at the end of the day. Be. Oh, clearly, I think so too. You know, that's the, in fact that's going to be one of my arguments moving forward. I think you're going to might agree with me on this. But nevertheless, we have a tremendous panel, both all giving presentations and also contributing to the conversation because all of us have a breadth of experience in the ECMO world and in different types of environments and settings. So I think that 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 inclusive in sort of environment of discussion adds to the conversation and uh, helps all of us be better at what we do. Um, so I've, in, I've, I've introduced everyone, I hope adequately. And uh, now I think we'll just go ahead and move forward right with my talk. And we'll go ahead and, and get this done. Okay, so we're ready? Hello? Okay, we're all set? Okay, good. So my presentation today is on ECMO and survival. And so I wanted to read this first. Let me put this up, this next slide. So William Barnett was a night watchman at the Chelsea College of Science and Technology in London. On the morning of January 1st, 1965, he and two colleagues had tea. Quite a British thing to do. 20 minutes later, they started vomiting. They drove to the nearby hospital where they were seen by a nurse. The nurse spoke to a doctor on the telephone who advised the men to go home and call in their own doctors. That sounds like a sensible thing to do. They left the hospital. A few hours later, Barnett was rushed to the hospital and died from arsenic poisoning. His widow sued the hospital for negligence. The court found that the doctor failed in his duty of care. He should have examined the patient. Yet the claim failed because it could not be shown that Barnett would have survived even with proper care. The doctor may have been ethically culpable, but to establish negligence in the law, the widow had to prove on the balance of probabilities that the doctor's breach of duty caused her husband's death in medicine, blah, blah, blah. Basically, the patient was going to die anyway. So where am I going with this? Well, the patient would have lived anyway. The better your outcomes are with ECMO, the criticism will always be the patient probably really didn't even need ECMO. Mm -hmm. But the longer you wait to decide, the poorer your outcomes will be. And the criticism will be, this patient was going to die anyway, what did you do this for? So you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. And that's, I think, the paradox, that's sort of the direction that I'm going with this presentation. So ECMO is indicated for cardiac support, VA only, is indicated for cardiogenic shock with severe cardiac failure due to almost any cause. So you can look at this list and see acute coronary syndrome, refractory arrhythmias, lethal arrhythmias, sepsis with profound cardiac depression, drug overdose, pulmonary embolism, acute anaphylaxis. So any reason that you have circulatory collapse ECMO is clearly indicated. 
Now, outcomes are a different story, but we'll get into that a little further. Post-cardiotomy syndrome, vis-a-vis -vis you can't wean the patient off of cardiopulmonary bypass. Post-heart transplant, in other words, the graft failed. And, cardi and chronic cardiomyopathy as a bridge to either a VAD or as a bridge to decision. Now, that can turn into a bridge to nowhere, mm -hmm. but it can also turn into a bridge to anywhere. So there's a lot of variability in all of this. Uh, Periprocedural report, uh, support rather, for high-risk PCA or PCI. I guess now they're using that for, they're using Impella for that, mm -hmm. but Impella costs twenty-five dollars to $30,000 for a catheter mm -hmm. when you can put somebody on ECMO for a thousand or less. Or a balloon and, pump. Or even a balloon pump, even cheaper. And, but the balloon pump doesn't offer you quite the same support. In other words, you know, and, and that's a really good question. So if you're going to do VA, you have to have the oxygenator obviously in line. Now, if you want to go and you want to go through the atrium and do like a, a left atrial femoral artery, you don't have to have the, you can have the oxygenator there in case you need it, but you can omit the oxygenator from the circuit for surface area if you wanted to. It'd be a little exotic, but you could do it. But VA ECMO um, for a high-risk PCI or for TAVR support or something like that versus an Impella, I think is really a more, a much more economical and possibly even a more technically simple approach towards what is a relatively common problem. And even you can keep them on it long term should you need to. You just have to make sure you have good lungs. But the same thing applies with the Impella. If you use the Impella for a uh, high-risk PCI and they fail and they go into RV failure, you really need VA ECMO. The Impella is not going to help you. You got to throw in an RP, mm -hmm. and those aren't so easy to put in. I, I don't know. They're commonly used enough to, to for the practice. Yeah. Yeah, I question that too. I think that uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. Okay, so moving on. Um, indications for respiratory support, uh, severe bacterial or viral pneumonia. Okay. That's very common. We see that a lot. Aspiration pneumonias or aspiration syndromes, alveolar protonosis, uh, extracorporeal assistance to rest the lungs for airway obstruction, pulmonary contusion, a fireman gets smoke inhalation or a, or a, or a, or a victim. Um, lung transplant, if you have graft failure or the graft just isn't quite strong enough at the moment, bridge to transplant, and that's very common. In fact, they talk about moving patients all the, you know, taking patients and walking them down the hall of ECMO. <clears throat> and everybody thinks that, you know, well, patients on ECMO, why can't you move this patient down the hall? Well, there's a big difference between a patient who is on VV ECMO awaiting transplant versus that has had a chronic problem mm -hmm. versus a patient who is septic, mm -hmm. sicker than dog do, mm -hmm. you're not walking that patient anywhere. They're probably gonna have neuromuscular blockades on anyway. So you, there's a big problem, big difference in the type of patient that we're talking about. But I've had a lot of people say, well, why, can't we, why can't we wake this patient up and extubate them on ECMO? No, uh, we do, we see that frequently. We're seeing that more and more, especially on VA. But the problem with ambulation is, um, you know, for pulmonary support, absolutely. But you're, you can use it's. It's all about cannulation. That's your first step. Yes. You know, in VA, more than likely, it's going to be femoral cannulation or two different insertion yeah. sites. And you're not ambulating you're, somebody you're not. with femorally cannulated. At best, you can sit them yes. up. Yes. And you and I, I don't, I don't, I 
you know, I mean, for VA, sometimes that's what you have to do if you're not centrally cannulated. But, you know, I, I, for VD, I don't like femoral cannulation. I just don't think it makes sense. But you and I know you and I disagree a little bit on that. We can, we can have that discussion moving forward. Anyway, um, and also, of course, for uh, pulmonary hemorrhage with hemoptysis and for <clears throat> diaphragmatic hernia and uh, baconium aspiration, probably the most common reason we see it in the pediatric world anymore. Absolute contraindications among these futile treatment without an exit strategy in cases of, and there's the list, uh, especially brain injury, malignancies, unwitnessed cardiac arrest. Those yeah. are very concerning, especially when they do end up on ECMO. Uh, unrepaired aortic dissection, uh, prolonged CPR, AI, big problem because the heart's probably so dilated and damaged and put them on VA ECMO, it just blows it up and that's it or clots later on, or whatever mm -hmm. the case may be. Uh, compliance, in other words, is this patient going to be, if they're homeless and you bring them in and you save them, you know, we're all here to save lives, but is this patient going to be compliant? What's the, how, how, how far do we go? A big difference between a 17 year old that drops on the field mm -hmm. because they have uh, IHSS or a bicuspid aortic valve versus a 55-year-old homeless person, or even a 55-year-old who was out jog his morning jog before he went to work versus that homeless person. I mean, we do have to be, and I'll talk about that some uh, moving forward, too. VV ECMO is contraindicated in cardiogenic failure and in severe chronic uh, 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 pulmonary hypertension. And relative contraindications are for anticoagulation, advanced age, and, uh, and morbid obesity. So, my talk could end actually on this slide, but it won't. Survive, sorry. Survival rates reported in the literature range, and this is for VA, between 20 and 30% among patients who receive VA ECMO for uh, these common reasons. That was validated and by Shin later on and at, for looking at discharge times and 30 day and one year survival. Um, he says that ECMO performed for cardiac arrest was associated with increased survival with minimal neurologic impairment and, uh, compared to conventional cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So patients who did receive ECMO as part of their resuscitation versus those who survived the resuscitative event without ECMO, the neurologic outcomes were better. I think that is important because it, always, it is all about circulation. Right. And you can do some great CPR, but it just does not. I think why prolonged CPR is in there. Mm -hmm. You can do great CPR, but it is never going to compare to the circulation support, circulatory support you can give with a mechanical device. But are these the 20%? There's a quick video. Can they hear it? Buddy, and every, yeah. I saw that everything was ordered. So they're like, oh, go ahead, eat, everything's ordered, don't worry about ordering anything. And knowing that. I got it, I'll start it over. You have it or I have it? You have it, okay. It's an incredible story from Sharp. I was at the restaurant and just going and saying hi to everybody. And every, I saw that everything was ordered. So they were like, oh, go ahead, eat. Everything's ordered. Don't worry about ordering anything. And knowing that I'm allergic to peanuts, I decided to 
eat dumplings or pick the steamed dumpling because the fact that they're steamed, they're not, uh, there's no peanut sauce, it's not fried in peanut oil. My last memory of the night was we took a group picture. And then after that, I don't remember anything else. When I first heard about this patient, I was actually just coming in to start a shift at 10 p.m. I was taking over for the doctor who was going off and he said, hold everything, we got a sick patient coming in. Let's get ready for this, and then I'll tell you about everything else that's been going on. Uh, so he said, it's a bad peanut allergy. That's all I really know, and this guy's unresponsive. And he's not breathing on his own anymore. When a patient's this sick, there's no time to waste. Uh, he had already received adrenaline. He had received the mechanical ventilator. He would received paralytics and was having everything that we could possibly do to try to help him breathe. And unfortunately, it wasn't working. Four right there. Fill me up. ECMO functions in such a way that you take blood out of the body, you run it through a complicated system with a filter uh, and with a pump to remove the CO2, the carbon dioxide from the hemoglobin, and to replace it with fresh oxygen that'll bind to the hemoglobin, and then it goes back in to the patient. You put a needle in, you get venous blood back, you slide a wire through that, that's gonna be your track to slide your catheter over but it needs a, uh, a bunch of serial dilations. And so he was using these just gigantic dilators to create this huge hole for this massive catheter uh, to go into this guy's body. My first memory is waking up and just looking around and wondering what happened. I had something in my neck, I uh, noticed that. So I started touching and I was like, what is this? And then the nurses came in and then Dr. Shaw came in and started explaining everything to me. When I returned back to the hospital about two days later, I came in and met Conrad for the first time. He was, at that point, still on the mechanical ventilator, but he was awake, he was interactive, he was communicating, he was writing notes, and it was the most joyous feeling you can possibly imagine to see this young man who had been so close to death, now awake, alert, and able to enjoy his family. And to see him basically walk out and be a part of his family and be able to talk and walk and interact and, and basically the same guy he was before he came in. It's just so exciting and it's, it's really what you live for in emergency medicine. Now I feel like I have two birthdays. My birthday when I was born and my birthday when I woke up in the hospital. So, you know, a couple of things. One, there's no filter, okay? Yeah. There's no filter. The system really isn't that terribly complicated. It's not. Um, the cannulas, though large, aren't quite really massive. <laughs> but, but I think that depends on who you ask. Yeah. You know, somebody said you want to start an IV and you have a 24-inch cannula. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a big IV. Yeah, yeah. That's, this is true. But it's hose. just it's just perspective of those who work in our world versus yeah. those that work in that world. You know, right. and the way yeah. they describe these things. But anyway, the. Filter is an oxygenator for, you know, those of you who may not know that, but I know I think everybody does. But, okay, so, and this is a debate that's been going on for a very long time. What is the survival of uh, patients on, uh, on ECMO? And uh, it's a real problem because there are people who believe that the, no one, in fact, I've been told this by intensive care medicine physicians, um, no one ever lives on ECMO, and I've been, to, unless they didn't need it. And uh, then I've also been told by others, you know, the complete opposite, that 
people would live a lot more on ECMO if people weren't so afraid of putting it in sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a, a delicate balance that occurs and the risk of criticism and the risk of death are so interconnected on this, this, this seesaw. And uh, it's a tough one, but hopefully we can address some of that. So SESAR trial came to be for VV to discuss the efficacy and economic assessment of conventional ventilatory support versus uh, ECPO. It was a multi-center randomized controlled trial published in uh, Lancet. The second trial that we're going to look at is the EOLIA, which is, and none of the description of what it is really matches the name of the trial. So I've never figured out how they, how they name these things. I guess they just wanted it to sound good and they couldn't come up with an acronym. But this was published in uh, the New, New England Journal of Medicine. So let's look at SESAR first. The clinical question is, is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, also known as ECMO, a safe, efficient, and cost-effective treatment compared with conventional ventilation for the management of patients uh, that have severe adult respiratory failure, ARDS, or whatever the case may be? It's a randomized control trial, uh, 24 of the patients and there was a total of 108 or 200, I think it was 240 total that were, that were ended up randomized, or 180 were obviously selected. Uh, randomized to ECMO never received the treatment. So that's important to know. Five patients died either before or during the transfer, and the remaining 17 patients continued with conventional ventilation non-blinded to clinicians, but researchers were blinded at up to six-month follow-up. So very important to understand that this trial was a lot more about transfer of patients to an ECMO center than it was actually about ECMO. And if they didn't transfer, then they got the conventional ventilatory support. It was based in the UK. 92 conventional uh, tertiary ICUs. Glenfield Hospital was the only center where ECMO treatment took place. So that was the ECMO center. So there's 92 hospitals with 11 of them referral hospitals, but only one was an ECMO center. The inclusion, severe but potentially reversible respiratory failure based on the, uh, the, the things that you see, the Murray score, the PAFO, PAO2, FIO2 ratio, PEEP, and so forth, um, 18 to 65 years of age. Exclusion, peak inspiratory pressures greater than 30 and or a required FIO2 of greater than eight, of, uh, 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 80% for more than seven days. And they excluded them because with an, with, a, with, a, with an inspiratory peak pressure of over 30, 30 or greater, and that much of uh, concentration of inspired uh, oxygen, after seven days, the barotrauma and the corrosive uh, uh, properties to the alveoli of, of that level of oxygen is going to be irreversible. Mm -hmm. And so here, when we see patients that can put on, VA, on VV ECMO, who they've been whipping the lungs for the past 10 days, mm -hmm. and now out of desperation, say, put, put the patient on ECMO, we go right back to that original mm -hmm. thing of the Mr. Barnett who had the arsenic poisoning. Well, they were going to die anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. Mm 
Interventions, transfer to the ECMO specialist center and consideration for ECMO treatment. All patients randomized for consideration of ECMO were transferred to Glenfield's own specialist retrieval team by their team. No patient was ever transferred on ECMO. If patients were stable, a standard protocol was used, and that describes it there. Uh, if patient did not respond within 12 hours, they received cannulation and ECMO according to published institutional guidelines. So if they randomized them to ECMO, they got sent to the ECMO center, but then in the ECMO center, they optimized the ventilation, and at 12 hours, if they didn't respond, then the decision was made to put them on ECMO. Um, Non-responders included people who, patients who had a greater than 90% FiO2 to achieve, and I find this odd, but a pulse ox saturation of 90%. I, I, I don't know that I'm really that comfortable with that, only because I've seen a lot of pulse oxes, and the pulse ox had to be on a peripheral digit, so in order to be included in this study. I'm not that comfortable with that, but that was their protocol. Um, and or respiratory uh, or metabolic acidosis of a pH less than 7.2 or were hemodynamically unstable. So those were, if you were a non-responder and you were going to be put on ECMO, that was a done. Uh, Venovenous was the mode using uh, percutaneous cannulation with, I'm assuming, an Avalon. Servo-controlled roller pumps, not a centrifugal pump, which I found very interesting. Mm. And the ECMO was continued until lung recovery or apparent irreversible multi-organ failure had ensued. The outcome, primary outcome, was death or severe disability, which included or was, was defined, rather, as confinement to bed and ability to wash and dress alone at six months after their randomization. In the ECMO group, 17 of the 85 patients that arrived at Glenfield continued to receive conventional ventilation rather than ECMO, and 82% or 14 of those patients survived without severe disability. So taking the patient from their outside community hospital, sending them to the ECMO center, optimizing their ventilator with experienced people meant that patient survived without severe disability for six months certainly but never had to get up be put on ECMO so now we start thinking and talking about do the pulmonologists at whatever hospital X who want to do ECMO really understand how to optimize their ventilator. Are they as good at that as perhaps some others may be at ECMO? How many patients, and, and I think that's really the issue, is do they know how to optimize the, the, the ventilator and the patient doesn't need ECMO and can get through without it? Or do they not know how to do that and the patients are getting ECMO that may not have needed it and that's that subset, that cohort of patients who they say they would have done fine without ECMO? It all depends on who's saying that. I think that matters. Um, let's see. Okay, moving on. So the conclusions of the authors of CESAR are that 
The study supports ECMO as a valid treatment option for the management of patients with severe respiratory failure. However, it does not show that ECMO is better than conventional ventilation. With incomplete follow-up data in nearly half of the patients, and this is very important, 24% of the patients in the ECMO group not actually receiving ECMO, we are left with insufficient evidence as to whether ECMO is better or worse than, protocol, than standard ventilation. Ards, standard ARSNET ventilation, I'm sorry, protocolized ARSNET ventilation in adults with patients with severe respiratory failure. The study, however, does highlight the importance of involving specialist units, effective lung protective ventilation, and ECMO as an option in refractory respiratory failure. In the EOLIUS uh, trial, this was, the question is, is in patients with severe ARDS, does the early initiation of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation compared to standard care improve mortality at day 60? That's their central question. So here's their background. Severe ARDS continues to have high mortality despite improvements, mechanical ventilation and rescue therapies. You can read all of this. We all know this. Then they talk a little bit about the CESAR trial, and it remains unclear if ECMO improves outcomes compared to standard treatments, including protective lung ventilation, proning, and recruit maneuvers. So that's the background, and the central question was survival at 60 days. It is a prospective, multi-center, randomized controlled trial. Um, they used uh, predominantly MAKE, but they uh, disclaim or claim that they were not involved in the trial design, data analysis, or interpretation. That's significant, I think, to state that. Target sample size was 331 patients. They had a defined stopping rule, which was safety, efficacy, or futility. 64 centers, international though predominantly in France. And I think the French are really uh, advancing on the, uh, on the ECMO front. I think they're really making a major push, especially with that, um, with that uh, mobile ECMO unit that they, that they have. And, uh, well, you know, Matt was on here a couple of, of last month, Matt Warhoover, and he had some data out of their, their uh, programs. And I'll tell you what, you know, they, their survival for VA ECMO for patients that have sudden cardiac or, uh, sudden cardiac death was significantly better with those mm -hmm. mobile units than standard CPR. So, you know, until putting the ECMO in when they got to the to the hospital, it seems to be making a difference. You know, I don't know that we're going to be able to do it here, or if we can, where. But you know, France is a much smaller country. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, their outcomes are better. Okay. Um, inclusion criteria, uh, ARDS as uh, described by the American European Consensus Conference definition, and we all know what the definition of ARDS is. Exclusion, uh, less than 18 years old. Mechanical ventilation, greater than seven days. So here we are again. Mm -hmm. They're excluding anyone on mechanical ventilation for greater than seven days. However, you know this, mm -hmm. you know this, and you may not know this because you probably a little more, you, you, where you are, you might not have that same experience, but we certainly do. Mm -hmm. 10 days, nine days, mm -hmm. and everybody wonders why our outcomes or why that patient didn't make it. Mm -hmm. And they were young and survivable in my opinion. No, I, I agree with you on that. Um, it, it really is just depending on whatever your interpretation of ventilation is, but sometimes it's 
I think they're going to turn the corner. I think they're going to turn the corner. Or, you know, mm -hmm. today, you know, the blood gases look better, ventilation looks a little bit better, and then it goes backwards. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do see that a lot. You know, I'm in a heart failure unit, but with that is lung transplants and those pulmonary patients. And uh, to, to answer that, basically, I, I don't know if it's just going one direction or the other. You can't necessarily say that because there's so much strategy involved in these pulmonary patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair that's a fair assessment. I think um, you know taking the, the the opposite side of of my argument, but I think that uh, though I agree to you in large agree with you in large part, I think that um, that I, you know I don't necessarily believe in centralization as a as a as a as a, a thing, but I do feel that we are over competitive in hospitals and that in, especially when they're in close proximity to each other. And I do think that in order to manage these patients that have severe respiratory dysfunction of whatever sort, you have to see enough of it to really be good at it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I do think that we need to consider, I don't believe in, uh, I don't believe in single payer healthcare. I don't believe in, I'm not a socialist by any stretch uh, of the imagination. But I do think that the more you do of something, and I think it's commonsensical, the more you do of anything, theoretically, and I think mostly, you are better at it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that these really highly critical patients like this need to be assessed at any hospital in any area and one of them be selected as the place where they go. Mm -hmm. Well, I, Makes I, more sense. No, you're absolutely right. But a part of that is I think physicians in general, because they're... At the end of the day, they're the ones that make the decisions. I think if you just understand your limitations, and that's not saying you're a bad physician or you're a good physician. What that means is, you know what? Uh, I've had a run of these type of patients. Let me pass it on. It doesn't mean that this other physician is better than me, but if that's what they deal with all day, every day, like you're saying, mm -hmm. then send them there. I don't necessarily think that your hospital is any less than mine. It's just what you see in volume. So, you know, we, we see heart failure patients, but mm -hmm. you see your standard patients that are healthy. And so your ventilator strategy works on most of these patients. You see it in your mm -hmm. ICU. Just because they're not a lung patient, you have these strategies that work that you get patients, uh, you know, in the hospital out all day long. It's just mm -hmm. when you have that bad one, that's when you're like, where did I go wrong? When, when should I have made that decision mm -hmm. to transfer them? Mm -hmm. Not because they're better, but because they, they have a better plan than we do. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I mean, that's, that's true, too. But again, that, that goes to the, that kind of goes to the central point of, you know, first of all, your, your issue of, or your, your point that uh, uh, about the physicians, and I think this is with really almost any, any high-level advanced practice clinicians like all of us at this table or physicians, frequently wrong, never in doubt, you know, and I don't think that that's helpful. I think that you have to, it's very hard for them to know their limitations because, again, you, you, you just don't know your limitations. That's not what we're trained to do. That's not how we're built. That's not how we're supposed to think. And those are pressures put on us by administrators, by society, by ourselves, each other, and everything else. But there's not any one place, for example, in a city like Houston, in the med center, that can manage, let's just say it's you. There's only so many beds you have. Mm -hmm. You can only make those buildings so big. Right. So in a community like this, you need more than one center. Mm -hmm. But you don't need every hospital right. in a 40-mile radius, and there's a lot of them, or 50-mile radius even, and there's a lot of them to just go sticking people on ECMO. Now, you maybe put it in, get it, in, get it initiated, 
but somebody's got to be, there's got to be a system. You're coming to get this patient like right now. Mm -hmm. Make the decision over the phone, look at the parameters, make whatever adjustments. Somebody makes that call because look at what's happening with the reimbursement on it. Why do you think that's happened? It's happened because of it's being, it's, it's just being thrown in mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with just throwing it in if that's the right thing to do. And mostly it is. But you have to manage the patient. You have to have a plan. Right. ECMO is not, does, is not curative. Right. It buys you time Correct. to fix the problem. And it requires a lot of nuance associated with your therapeutic modality. You need to have ECMO. You need to have CRRT. You should have, I think, uh, hemoadsorption. Hemo uh, I think you should have uh, a lot. I mean, there's a lot of components to this infectious disease. You know, you got to treat the problem, the antibiotics, what the original problem fits. That's what it is. It's not as simple as I put the ECMO in and the patient is going to now miraculously get better on his own you because of her own because the ECMO's in. You need an ECMO management team from all right. uh, perspectives. And then resource utilization, <laughs> right. being able to accommodate re you know, changes like that. We talked about mm -hmm. that last night with staffing models. There's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. It's a complicated subject and a complicated topic. And if you do it well, it can be certainly at worst cost neutral for a hospital. There's a possibility that hospitals can actually generate some meaningful profit from it. Um, not, they're not gonna, nobody's gonna get rich from it, but certainly make it cost neutral um, and, and make your hospital stand out if you're really good at it. But if you do it wrong, it's horribly expensive. That's correct. Yeah, so, okay, I'm sorry, go back on my thing here. Okay, so the exclusion criteria are these things here. Uh, uh, pregnancy, over, uh, grossly morbid obesity, um, any kind of long-term chronic problem. Uh, and that any a cardiac failure resulting in v, VA ECMO where you had to convert, cancer, all of these various things. Um, so out of 10,015 uh, patients that were assessed for eligibility, they actually randomized 249 of these patients. And you'll notice again, the mean age is 51 to 54 years old, which is really the kind of sweet spot for when we see patients that need it mm -hmm. and patients that are should be highly viable. Um, and also very uh, interesting is, look at the percentage of patients were in there for septic shock, 65 to 67%. So a very significant uh, a, a rate. And bacterial pneumonia was the commonest diagnosis. Again, not something unusual. That is usually what we see in the VA ECMO world. Primary outcome was no statistical difference in mortality at day 60 for the ECMO group or the control group, though it was 44 out of 124 versus 57 out of 125, 35 to 46%. It did not achieve statistical significance, which I found very uh, interesting. Um, it seems anecdotally that that seems like a better number to me, but you know, it doesn't meet the statistical uh, test. Uh, so your relative risk of dying was 70, uh, uh, 76% with a 95% confidence interval. Um, there were some secondary outcomes. Crossover to ECMO, interestingly enough, occurred 35 of the 125 patients of the control group. And I don't think they did such a great job at readjusting the numbers on that. 
Uh, 60-day mortality was higher in the crossover patients, as one would expect, than the rest of the controls because, again, you took a patient who was failing traditional therapy and said they've gotten so bad we cannot handle them anymore. Let's now put them on ECMO. Mm -hmm. Is that how much did that contribute to this? I think a lot. Um, adverse events compared to control patients. ECMO patients had more thrombocytopenia, not surprising. Um, more bleeding events, and uh, but they had less ischemic strokes. Again, not surprising. Mm -hmm. You have perfusion, you have oxygenation, so you're not gonna have an ischemic stroke. The author's conclusions uh, that are that for ECMO, uh, for severe ARDS, showed no significant benefit of mortality at day 60 as compared with a strategy of conventional mechanical ventilation, which included crossover to ECMO used by 28% of the patients in the control group. However, the bottom line is that the study trial provides inclusive support for the benefit of ECMO in severe ARDS. The early initiation of ECMO did not improve 60-day mortality with an absolute risk ratio of 20% compared to standard care in patients. However, the data also suggests a possible clini clinical benefit from ECMO over standard care, especially if used early rather than late. Standard therapy included proning, uh, neuromuscular blockade, and they had a high rate of failure requiring rescue with ECMO. So proning alone was not considered uh, very positive in this setting. We got to think or about what you're doing, though. You know, if, if, that, if somebody doesn't understand that, you're, you're, you're laying a patient, you're moving a patient with these garden hoses coming out of their neck or yeah. their groin. Very difficult. So yes. there's a high risk of other complications with that. So yeah, acute decannulation. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Acute among, unintended decannulation. Correct. That's even worse. Exactly. Plus yeah. infection, because you know, right. I mean, you see this. These patients, you know, patients have all functions, right? Mm -hmm. So when they're dirty, they're sold or whatever. Now they're moving, positioning, and you know, sliding up and down the bed. You're just putting them at more risk for infection, plus pressure ulcers, everything mm -hmm. else. I mean, it's a to me the proning. I don't know that they, that necessarily outweighs all the other negative effects but with I, it. Thank you. But I will tell you this, is that although I think, I, I do think there is a downside to proning, but the patients that I've seen on ECMO that we have also proned have definitely benefited from it. From a purely pulmonary perspective, their oxygenation gets better, the, uh, the vent pressures go down, everything looks better. And so one of the reasons why I really, for VV ECMO, dislike uh, groin cannulation is when we're not going to prone the patient and you see them, especially when they're heavy and they're lying flat and they're, you know, they have a little short chest but a big barrel belly mm -hmm. um, and it's just shoving all that pressure up on the diaphragm, you see these really high peak pressures on the ventilator and everybody's struggling, and I just will set them up, even put them in a reverse Trendelenburg mm -hmm. and sit them up as much as I can to drop all of that mm -hmm. and take the pressure away, and you see the peak pressures on the ventilator come way down. You recruit some additional lung. You can sort of turn the, turn the, P, the FiO2 down. It just looks better. They get better. Mm -hmm. So I do think proning works, but I do think that there is an issue with safety, 
and with uh, increased risk of infection. So it does have a dark side, mm -hmm. but they do get better from a lung perspective, I don't think. Now, There's... did you mention the weight thing? I noticed in their study how you just see nobody was overweight. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that's kind of a big gray area. That's great for the study because it shows he's on somewhat healthy patients, but on the other hand, that's not our typical patient population. Right. right. I mean, VA or V, I mean, Houston, U.S., wherever you want to see it. But at the end of the day, you, their weight is really what's contributing to these conditions. Yeah, you might have an acute lung condition, whether it be asthma or a PE or something. But at the end of the day, these heart failure patients, these, these guys, are, they're overweight. They have multiple comorbidities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that weight's a factor. So I would like to see the same study with patients with a higher BMI because that's what we see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying they need to, everybody needs to have a large panis, but... You get the point, because that, that plays a factor in our position. It does, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and we're going to come right back to that. Throw my last slide up. Let me just tell you this. Three keys to success for ECMO. Selection, selection, and selection. <laughs> also, early decision, early, early utilization. Mm -hmm. Understanding that when they you put it in early, you see improved outcomes, you're going to be criticized. So if you put an unrecoverable patient on ECMO, the outcome will certainly be poor. Mm -hmm. If you believe no one survives on ECMO, you'd be wrong. If you cave to the pressure of criticism vis-a-vis -vis the patient didn't really need it, you will wait until it's too late mm -hmm. and the patient won't do well because now you've lost your window of opportunity. And use the published guidelines and develop your own inclusion exclusion criteria and follow it. And this is the hardest thing to say of all is you got to know when it's time to stop, because it the the the, the pain this the families go through is worse. The patient feels nothing at this point. The family is going through a lot of pain, and sometimes it's you know hard. But it's, you know, it's sort of obvious, at, you know, at times. I know none of us want to say that, but it's just the way it is. Uh, we can keep this going for another three or four days, but it's not, the, the end is the end. When there's the refractory acidosis, you know what I'm talking about. Right. It's obvious. Um, I know sometimes, you know, I've been, I've had curveballs thrown at me, and I know Absolutely. that's tough, but we got to figure it out. But getting to your point that I wanted to sort of expand on is, Yes, those were the patients they were doing it on. But don't we sort of need to start thinking that way here too? Don't we need to say, look, you have to have some personal responsibility. His BMI is X. He is not a candidate because the outcomes with those people are so poor. Whereas here's a not not a picture of health, you know, but not not morbidly obese. You know, maybe somebody like me, you know, or maybe a little worse, and uh, they just drop dead for no reason. Th that's that's a really salvageable case. But when they're 380 pounds and five foot seven, you, you they're not going to make it. See, uh, on that part, it sounds great, but I have physically experienced more than one 400 pound patient comes back in and says thank you. Mm-hmm. And there you on go. multiple occasions. Yeah, mm -hmm. it happens. You're right. It happens. And there, nobody has a crystal ball, right? No, I think at best bet, you just we need to have more structure. If I had to guess it with anything, because we, you know, us, we we have so many specialties, and it's like, man, that's great. Hemepath, manage that coagulation. 
you know, pulmonary, manage that ventilator. Surgical, we can manage cannulation techniques, strategies, positions, the same thing with cardiology. But at, the, but at the end of the day, because there's so many things, so many specialties, we don't have a strict guideline that would push us in the right direction. Because this 400-pound patient made it today, that's great, and we did the right thing, and we did what we wanted to do, and it turned out that way. That also sets us back 10 patients. Because of that one patient, we do the same thing for the next 10 patients, and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But we're like, remember, Mr. Smith, it worked for him. That's why we're still doing it. Yeah, and yeah. that's, I, you know what, and that's a valid point. It's like stopping. I, there was a patient on ECMO, and I... Somebody asked me what I thought, and I said, "Well, you know, it was just—it was the day before Thanksgiving." And I said, "Well, I, I don't—I don't think she—I think she's not going to be with us by the time the turkey comes out the oven." A week later, she was sitting up and talking to everybody, and I was like, "Oh my God! I'll never say that again! Oh my God!" <laughs> you know, it happens. But then there's the other ones that I'm like, "There's this patient should just do fine." They don't. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, we, we aren't, we, and that's, I think, what happens. But I think you would agree that when the patient's platelet count is, 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 is zero and the white count is zero and mm -hmm. their, 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 their feet are black and their pH has been 7.1 for the past three days, it's time to stop. Mm -hmm. There are some obvious ones. Mm -hmm. I've seen him come back from that as well. No, you haven't. I don't believe it. No, you're exaggerating. You're dreaming. No. You're dreaming on that one. You're dreaming. No, so that's, dreaming. that's what you got to ask yourself. And because I had this this uh, pulmonary physician, this critical care intensivist, I asked him that. I said, hey, man, what are we doing? This patient's old or old enough where you're like, okay, now what do we do? At the same time, like, look, look at the toes. Look at the feet. You know the slow process. First it's toes, mm -hmm. then it's the feet. Now mm -hmm. you have a bilateral amputee for whatever reason compartment syndrome um, but then they come out of it and so now you're six months down the road and you say hey what happened like I don't know I blacked out three months were gone I have prosthetics but now I get to go home to my three children mm -hmm. yeah then you get sued for cutting off their feet but I, I, I think that's extremely 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 rare I, I'm not so sure I mean that sounds I you know I believe you but no, but, but you don't need your hands and your feet. That's, I guess that's what I'm no, looking at. No, I do. I need them. <laughs> you need them, but, but when you got to... You need your hands you, and feet. I, if it's my mom, I'm going to say, you know what? I love my mom. So I can push her in a wheelchair. I can feed her. I can get her support. That's my personal belief. So because of that, we're going to go a little bit farther because I have the good support system for her. Mm -hmm. may, everybody else may not agree with that. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you don't need those things to I function. don't agree with it for me. But that's personal choice, and right. I do understand. Yeah. I think that's why we should all have advanced directives. I think we should all make Agreed. clear what our wishes are. Okay, I mean, I think that you start whittling my uh, my limbs off, it's time to it's time to quit. Okay, mm -hmm. and so that's just how I. But that's personal, and I think that we all, if you want everything possible done, no matter what, then I think you need to make that clear. And uh, I think we have to start taking more personal responsibility for our health. No, I agree a with lot that. Of things with a personal, but seeing that falls on the physician, which is something. It's not fair, but it's just a fact because they're the decision maker. And so, when that same physician, I asked him, he's like, because it's a, a it's personal to him. And I said, well, you don't know them. He said, no, but every patient's personal. You know, these they're not seeing 500 patients; they're seeing 10 or 20 at mm -hmm. a time. And so, when they're on ECMO or they're on these devices, you grow to know them. You grow to see the pictures on the wall in there, and so. Everybody's personal to them. Mm -hmm. So that's why they look at it this way. This is 
always somebody's something to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's fair. I can I can understand that. I think that's fair. Very good discussion. Okay, are you ready, uh, Miss Kimberly? Yes. Very good. Okay, we'll put Kimberly's uh, presentation up. Point at bottom screen. Oh no, it's over there. Okay. Yeah. Do you want me to change it for you? Hmm? No, I'm okay. You got it? Okay. Okay. So I'm going to be discussing anticoagulation management with ECMO. First slide, just want to discuss hemostasis disruption. So um, as soon as you expose a patient's blood to a foreign surface, you immediately stimulate inflammation and coagulation, which then leads to a prothrombotic state. The two most common complications with ECMO are bleeding and thrombosis. Our goal needs to be to prevent thrombosis in the patient and in the ECMO system while balancing and preventing a lethal or catastrophic bleeding event. So when you think about, and we talk about patient selection, of course these are all patients that typically go on. You're in ARDS, um, multi-system organ failure, raging sepsis, that's the ones that we're already putting on. So they've already spent 24, 48, 72 hours. All those inflammatory mediators already released. All of the clotting cascade already affected um, and makes it very difficult to manage them. And then your surgical patients, like your trauma patients. Trauma surgeons are hesitant to use it because they don't want all the bleeding issues. And um, same thing, you've had an acute traumatic event, patients go into SIRS, big inflammatory response. Um, and you talk to those guys and they're like, absolutely not. They're, you know, ECMO does nothing but make patients bleed. Um, and so you have to kind of consider those patients uh, beforehand and what they look like before they actually went on. Again, uh, you have to find the sweet spot of the desired dose of appropriate anticoagulation to maintain a circuit patency by preventing thrombus formation while minimizing the risk of bleeding in your patient. So it is a balancing act both you know, between nursing and perfusion, I think, you know, physicians will give you a guideline of where they want a patient to be, but I find it more, if we work together at the bedside, they Absolutely. typically mm -hmm. do much better than mm -hmm. here's your protocol, shoot for this number, that's mm -hmm. it. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, sometimes we have to deviate from that, drop down lower than where we're comfortable at times running therapy um, to continue when you know that a patient's going to be on for a longer period of time. Correct. Mm -hmm. And again, same thing when we start talking about weaning where, you know, we might have had a lower threshold running them for maintenance and then we start weaning, we're turning down flow, you've got to go higher so that you don't clot your mm -hmm. circuit. Um, and it's kind of one of those things that the physicians, again, they'll give you a protocol, say, meet these numbers, and it's more of a balancing act between I, I would agree with that. Perfusion. Absolutely, because you can't just go by, you know, the number says 50. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, can't, you can't go by that. That's a great number. You know there's no clotting going on there, but what as are the things? As long as you have good flow. Yeah. Well, as long as you have good flow, exactly. but it's, it's like what's going on with your patient. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, we have to look at those windows because, uh, you know, you get it like the one we just put on. No heparin in the beginning, which is most patients these days, right? You're like, why? Well, because they're bleeding. And, you know, do they have a neural bleed? Do they have an abdominal bleed? Or is it just cannulation site? Mm -hmm. And so I, I like what she's saying because, yes, the physician, he knows what he wants. But he's not there 24-7 right. unless you're, well, doctor, they work with you guys because he he's, he's there 23 out of 24 hours a day. But 
Having said that, I, I absolutely agree. But he also agree. has a very successful ECMO program. He does. Mm -hmm. But what I, what I like, though, is that he leaves it in our hands, and I work yeah. with her, and he leaves it up to us. We know, because we see these patients all the time, what's in their best interest. And so sometimes we have to not have heparin on board and say we'd rather not have them have a subdural bleed and change out the ECMO circuit versus, mm -hmm. oh, hey, our flows are great, but nothing's going on upstairs. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I think Dr. Manny does very well because he will give guidelines, but then he wants input from nursing and perfusion. He mm -hmm. really relies on us together to say, what do you think? And he takes the input from us. He does. I, yeah. think, he's, I think he's excellent at doing that. Um, so the most common types of anticoagulants use, um, heparin is obviously um, the most popular used one. And then, of course, you see patients with... It's kind of one of those things that um, I think it's... Um, Overdiagnosed? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, a lot. So in those cases, we've got bivalirudin and, or angiomax and argatroban. So if you have a patient that you suspect hit, I'm always going to advocate to get hematology in there. I think that that's more mm -hmm. than what palm critical care needs to be managing. A lot of them may disagree, but... I really think hematology needs to be involved because it is a, a, a more difficult balancing act mm -hmm. with those patients. Um, I, I agree with you on that. I think to take it a step further, I think anybody who's just on ECMO specifically should have your hematology team on. Why would you not have them on board? I mean, we know that your physicians can manage it, but these are the specialists. And, you know, how many patients do you have on ECMO out of your entire hospital? It's not a coronary patient or it's not a VAD patient. It's specifically ECMO. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's so, going right back to my earlier yeah. discussion sure. of we need to have places that have all of these services available, mm -hmm. a lot of different disciplines, mm -hmm. and not just XYZ community hospital that just wants to put the ECMO in because they could, Correct. and now nobody's managing them. Right, mm -hmm. or mismanaging. Okay, maybe they're not managing them as well as they could. We'll say it that way, more positive approach. <laughs> Uh, so just a little bit about heparin. Uh, again, it's the most commonly used anticoagulant uh, for both children and adults. Uh, potentiates antithrombin-3, resulting in inhibition of thrombin and factor 10A. Um, levels can be easily monitored and titrated following serial activated PTTs. Uh, it has a very short half-life, uh, 60 to 90 minutes in patients with normal kidney function. Uh, and can be as long as three hours in patients uh, with renal insufficiency. Um, it's the only one that has a reversible agent uh, with protamine, um, and monitoring methods include ACT, APTT, and antifactor 10A. Bivalirudin is a uh, direct thrombin inhibitor, uh, can be used uh, for patients who have uh, current or previous history of HIT or heparin resistance, has been used safely in adults, uh, but I couldn't find any data at all for use in neonates and pediatric patients. But that's, I've always been adult ICU nurse, so I cannot speak to that at all. Um, monitoring methods include ACT and PTT. Uh, Half-life of 25 minutes in patients with normal kidney function and 50 minutes in patients with severe renal impairment. Uh, again, no reversal antidote, so you get a patient that you do start having bleeding issues, uh, becomes a problem, because uh, 25 minutes can seem like a long time when you're you emptying the blood lot. bank. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be used safely in patients with hepatic and renal insufficiencies.
Argatraban, another direct thrombin inhibitor, can be used uh, for patients who have current or previous history of HIT or heparin resistance again. Um, has been safely used in adults and is the first pediatric labeled safe choice for patients with HIT. Monitoring methods again include ACT and PTT, half-life of 45 minutes. Uh, again, the problem with it, no uh, reversal antidote um, and has to be dose adjusted for patients with hepatic impairment. So the big thing with the DTIs, um, they're more expensive than heparin um, and you know, that's and Always static a, blood will still clot. Yeah. The blood has to be moving. Yeah. If it just sits there like a lot of our connectors, mm -hmm. uh, if our sampling ports, ports yeah. Yeah, if you're not you flushing have to be very diligent with yeah. that. Yeah. Sorry, we didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're good. <laughs> um, then I just wanted to kind of discuss traditional ECMO anticoagulation ranges. Again, activated PTT one and a half to two times the baseline or goal of the 50 to 70 uh, ACT 160 to 180 for patients who are bleeding or 180 to 220 for non-bleeding patients. And then the anti-10A uh, 0.3 to 0.7 international units per mil. Again, those are just ranges. They have to be adjusted specifically for your patient where you're at in therapy, are you just going on, um, are you day 10 and you're looking at another five days. Um, so that's why you know, I wanted to kind of say in the first slide that it, it's a balancing act between nursing and perfusion. That's just a guideline and you really have to look at the big picture. Mm -hmm. can, um, can you tell us anything about anti-10A, this, this, uh, this? Yes, uh, I have uh, another dosing? slide on it. Oh, good, because I don't know a lot of, I, don't, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about measuring for anti-10A activity. I yeah. really know very little of nothing. Yeah, so there's therapeutic and prophylactic, which I've got a few slides later. Um, so just ACT, it's an inexpensive point of care, readily available test that reflects time of clot formation via the intrinsic coagulation pathway. Um, for us at our facility, we've got a ACT machine in uh, the ICU, the OR, and the cath lab. So the big thing with that is um, using your appropriate machine and cuvettes for your area. So obviously you guys in the OR have the high range because going on pump your patients, you're going to be naturally up over 200. Um, so you have 380. 300. 480 and above is 480. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 380 and above, I'm happy with. So um, the only thing with that is um, knowing which machine you have, which cuvettes you have, what it's mm -hmm. QC'd for, and using the appropriate one. Um, don't drag that one from the OR back over to the unit for your maintenance um, and um, be constantly getting out of range um, results. Um, again, can be utilized immediately in the OR, ICU, and the cath lab. Um, frequently used initially and then serial monitoring and titration, at least at our facility, we switch over to the activated PTT. Same for us. We, yeah. use, it, we use ACT in the OR uh, and then initial for uh, initiation is ACT to see if you're moving in the right directions because it's quicker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we convert to PTT. Yeah. That, uh, that's same for us when they come, you know, if we've got somebody that couldn't come off pump, um, coming from the OR, we know that they're going to be high. We'll keep doing ACTs until we're at a point where we're like, okay, ACTs now down where we want it. We want to start our heparin. Now we'll flip over to PTTs because, mm -hmm. you know, PTTs turn over fairly quickly in the lab, but it's still 
30, 40 minutes mm -hmm. um, on a good day as long as, you know, somebody got your specimen out of the tube, picked it up, started running right. it, and it mm -hmm. didn't sit down there, hemolyze, mm -hmm. and then you're, you know, getting one later. And mm -hmm. um, So the biggest thing with that that you have to consider is that results can be altered in patients who are hemodilutional or hypothermic. Mm -hmm. So, again, um, all your patients coming out of the OR, um, as much as they try to maintain normothermia, we know they're going to come out, and uh, more times than not, they're going to be hypothermic. So you have to consider that in your first couple ones that you do, um, uh, balancing what their temp is along with your result. And that's not to mention if you didn't get hypothermic protocol. Yeah. Because you suspect something else, so now you have to keep them cold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, activated PTT is used to measure the clotting uh, factors of the intrinsic and common pathways of the clotting cascade by measuring the time in seconds it takes a clot to form. Typically, the standard for monitoring and titrating anticoagulation therapy for heparin, uh, bivalirudin, and argatroban. Um, it's not a point-of-care test, so again, it's got to be sent down to the lab, um, and it's usually resulted. We send all of ours, even if they're time studies, we just profile them as stat. Um, they go down in stat bags, they're picked up right away, um, and um, then there's kind of some kickback for lack of better words and accountability on the lab side of things um, mm -hmm. if something goes down and mm -hmm. um, sits there. Um, and then um, anti-10A. I'm starting to see this more at my facility. Uh, I can't speak for downtown. Do you guys do anti-10As? No. no. Um, so the anti-factor 10A assay is designated to measure plasma heparin, including unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin levels. I'm seeing it more like in the um, low molecular weight, um, looking at are they therapeutic, um, uh, especially like in our trauma patient population, um, not so much in our ECMO patients at this time. But when you look through the um, research, there are some facilities that are exclusively using this and PTTs to kind of guide their therapy. I see the factor 10A a lot when I read the European literature yeah. because they a lot of those guys, and I, I like what they do, is they use the low molecular weight in heparin. Mm -hmm. And so instead of titrating... The Lovenox. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get your dose once or maybe twice, sub-Q. And that's enough to get you therapeutic. It gets you not for only for your ECMO patients. For your ECMO, but it, it, they're using it for their general patient population. Because you know this study, you want anybody you're using this on, it's going to be a cardiac patient usually, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, for us, it's a coronary patient, um, or it's a, uh, a bad patient, or it's an ECMO patient. Mm -hmm. But the ones I see in Europe, like this, like I said, they use that low molecular weight because for us, time to be therapeutic is critical, just as important as the other one. Okay, now we're not clotting off, but it took us 72 hours to get there. Mm -hmm. And so by using this, it's a lot quicker. Mm. But no antidote, even though it's heparin. The, the, doesn't yeah, but I would much rather deal with the bleeding because you can give things to correct the bleeding. But what do you give to correct the clot other than changing a circuit or trying to, you know, take out a clot out of the lung? Right. Yeah, mm. that's a problem. So the things personally that I've seen at our facility is um, some of the drawbacks to it, especially with the low molecular weight. So it's got to be timed um, and getting that draw done um, mm -hmm. appropriately with um, your 
Lovenox uh, injection within that 30 to 60 minute window mm -hmm. um, post-injection. So did your nurse give it on time? Did the lab tech get up there on time? Could you get it resulted accurately is the, the big problem with it. So there's, you know, different therapeutic ranges. Um, there's therapeutic and prophylactic ranges. Uh, so you have to be sure that you're actually looking at and measuring the correct one and that lab's not resulting out your prophylactic range and you think that you're dosing appropriately. Mm. Um, we have a wonderful clinical pharmacist that um, works in the unit um, who um, is much more familiar uh, with this and dosing um, and literature on that uh, that really kind of gives us a hand with that. Um, it's typically run, again, in addition to uh, APTT, but it, it takes longer to result. Effective tool for patients with uh, uh, suspected heparin resistance. Monitoring when initiating therapy, again, uh, in the OR, ICU, a ACT can be utilized immediately as a bedside point of care, but then typically we transition back over to the PTT, monitor every two hours until a target goal is reached, and then you can continue to monitor every four to six hours, depending on your hospital protocol. So I say two hours, but you have that patient that's super oozy. Um, it's easy to do every hour, every right. 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. We gave some product. Let's see where we're at now. I, I completely um, agree with that. The sooner, the better. And that, that two hours, that, even that's a good number. Yeah. Because there's plenty of them you see, right? They, you give that initial bolus, shoots way up. You're, you're over 200. Mm -hmm. And then what do they do? They, oh, we'll get one in a few hours, and there's no strict protocol. So now you see it trending back down, and you get one, and it's like, oh, well, it's 90. Great, they're still out of range. Then now you're like, oh, it's 29. Well, it's yeah. 1 a.m., so now what do you do? Yeah. yeah. Do you, does it going to continue to trend down? How do you treat that? Yeah. So I think that every couple hours is, is an excellent idea. Yeah. And that's why we like using the ACT initially, because it's nothing we have to have. And, you know, uh, put an order in the computer, send it down to lab. The uh, hemocron's in the unit. You run it yourself. Mm -hmm. Results right away. And that, one thing that I like about the ACT, like, I, and it's reliable, but the PTT is better. But if you're having a problem, you can run one now, even though, and it'll tell you if you're going in the right direction. Right. So you're like, oh, we were, you know, there's a correlation between ACT and PTT. So you're like, you know, if you have 180 and above, your PTT should be here. Yeah. And so if anything, if it was going down, you know you're trending up. And that'll get you, um, for me, like in the middle of the night, I'm like, are we going, which direction are we going? Mm -hmm. And it'll, it'll give you a little bit of clarity until you get yeah. that other result in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do have an issue, though, you know, I don't know if you experienced this also, but I've run serial ACTs when they're low, when they're low with, the, with the low range ACTs. And I've gotten results everywhere from 130 to 160 to 180 to 140 on the exact same sample. So I drew a sample, did it did it again, did it again, did it again, did it again. And it's not like it sits there and it's, it's degrading because the, the, the ACT went up versus down. So, mm -hmm. you know, I guess I, I don't have a lot of confidence in, in ACTs when we're in the low range. I think you're right. It does tell you, I think, at least give you some idea. If it's 160 or 180, you probably have some. It's not normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We know that. But to your point, you know, how much is hemodilution factored into that? How much is being cold factored into that? Cold blood don't clot, you mm -hmm. know, but in the ECMO circuit with that big surface area, that can be a problem. I think we do need something more precise, something more that we can depend on. I think, although we've been pretty 
I think, good at it. We haven't had a lot of, we've only had circuits cloud off when some folks have said, I don't care, run, turn the heparin off and turn mm -hmm. the flow down because it's a VA and it just comes to a stop. Mm -hmm. uh, because it will. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and you, you do that once and you learn. Mm -hmm. And you don't do it again. But I do think we need a better test that can turn over faster, that does do what low range ACT is intended to do, but more reliably. I do feel that way. I think problem with reliability that I've seen with it is, you know, who's managing the device when it's three months, no ECMO patients on, is somebody actually doing the QCs mm -hmm. um, every month like it's supposed to be done? That I think that's more of an issue that I've seen with the Hemocron is, you know, that device has been sitting there, hadn't been QC'd, um, or doesn't get QC'd correctly, and that's when I've seen more of a difference in, you know, why did I just get 180 and I ran it again, and now it says, you know, 120, mm -hmm. it's the same specimen. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's more Done of an issue. Done within 180 seconds of each other, yeah. and that is a concern for me yes. too. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. I agree. Um, and of course, uh, if at any point you have to stop your anticoagulation for any reason, then of course you always want to go back to your frequent monitoring again, the every two hours or more frequently until you're therapeutic, and then go back and resume every four to six hours um, per your hospital protocol. So in community settings where they don't do a lot of ECMO, that's where you get into trouble, where they don't really understand there's not a lot of that collaboration between nursing and perfusion. Um, and so, you know, I, where we are, I kind of, I've seen patients that they want to transfer downtown and we're meeting that wall, no, no beds available, we want to decentralize everything, and, you know, and here you are, now you're stuck. So, yeah. Yeah. again, I, I do think that selection of community setting uh, facilities uh, and say, hey, look, these guys do this often. The, they work with perfusion, they work with nursing, um, with the critical care team really know how to manage these patients and kind of prevent that. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, asking for help is really, I think, um, you know, I mean, even if you, even if you aren't going to transfer the patient, if, you are, if you're stuck with it, yeah. just ask for some help. Yeah. You know? That's it. Which I don't understand it it's not defeat we're, we're a team you know no I, that's what I, well, I said that in my previous talk there's too much inter facility competitiveness mm -hmm. and you know we're in a business we're in the business of helping patients mm -hmm. I don't care who it is I don't care who the clinician is I don't care if I despise that person there's very few people I despise but even if I did going to help them yeah mm -hmm. okay now after it's over you know did everything we could do I'm going to go back to you know saying how I feel about them <laughs> but I'm not in the moment we're all in that same business and I feel like nursing is the same way yeah. if a nurse from another hospital called you up and said hey we've got this situation I know you do a lot of this you know what would you do in this circumstance you're going to help them. Absolutely not and a competitive bone in my body about that. Right. I will go to that facility and help them. If, exactly. You know, if you need me on the phone or if you need me there, it's not about I work for Herman and you work for so-and-so. It's about a patient, that's bottom right. line. And I think that's very important for everybody out in the rest of the world to know that clinicians, this is the mentality that we have. I think yeah. that's a very, it's a very important point. Yeah.
Um, I just wanted to throw up some additional lab studies again to monitor. Um, obviously, careful attention to CBC with trending of your hemoglobin and hematocrit and platelet count um, at least daily, if not uh, every 12 hours. Uh, daily CMP to monitor and trend renal and hepatic function. Um, and uh, hopefully there's a CMP or some sort of idea of hepatic function before you ever went on. Um, you know, your cardiac arrest patient that drops that goes on, obviously you can't have on. But, you know, your sepsis patient, hopefully there was an idea of where we were beforehand. Um, daily fibrinogen um, and uh, plasma-free hemoglobin or LDH if hemolysis is suspected. Um, and again, if uh, coagulopathy is suspected, uh, then you can utilize a rapid tag to assess platelet function, clot strength, and fibrinolysis. So um, rather than just guessing at what product do I need to throw at oh, this patient. Absolutely. We do, I think that is a test that is underutilized. Oh, I yes. understand not every hospital has the ability to run one of those, but it, I mean, it will save you money, time, and patient care if you can say exactly where the where the angle is, yes. what, what your waveform looks like. And why not? Why doesn't ever? I mean, they're not expensive. Yeah, they're not expensive at all. They're not. No, you know, I, I mean, I know part of it's time. Pound foolish. But in, in an ECMO patient or even post cardiotomy patient, we do that. I know we do that for uh, transplants and bad patients. Mm -hmm. Usually, if we try to time it right. Thirty minutes before coming off bypass, we run laps. We send them. Mm -hmm. So whenever we're coming off bypass, heme pad comes back in there and says, "Oh." Don't put all those cells in there. Here you go. Here's some Amacar. Here's this. We can do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Good. especially with the big move towards blood conservation mm -hmm. and not using as much product. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, we'll start seeing physicians. And I think the biggest problem, especially where I'm at, is like a lot of them don't even know that we've got the tool available in the lab right. um, to utilize it, or they don't know what to do with the results. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right. I had one surgeon where I was like, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you I'm gonna send this. I'm not mm -hmm. gonna stand here and have this argument with you about is this a, you know, bleeding issue or, you know, because I, I felt very strongly that the patient needed to go back to the OR. I felt like it was a proline deficiency and Always. he disagreed. And I said, well, I'm not gonna stand here and have this conversation with you, I'm gonna send this off and then we'll um, discuss yeah. it. And I mean, he just flat out told me, He's like, well, I don't know how to interpret that. And I said, well, I have this little book right here, and it gives well, you directions. That's what, you're on. that's what goes back to that heme yeah. tap person. Because there's a big difference between platelet function and platelet yes. count. Yes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So I, it, it is really and underutilized at this point. Yeah. And you're resuscitating with non coagulation factors. You're bleeding coagulation factors, so guess what happens? Yeah. Your counts go down. Yeah. Eventually, you do become coagulopathic, but yeah. you're never going to fix it if don't you don't fix the Don't let them continue holes. to bleed yes. yeah. and use fix. up all those factors and wonder why there's nothing left to clot afterwards. Well, mm -hmm. they, they have a tamponade on top of it yeah. now because it's yeah. all bled out. Exactly. <laughs> um, wanted to throw a slide up here, uh, of course, about nursing considerations. Um, minimizing unnecessary blood draws. So a lot of times, uh, depending on what kind of patient, like ARDS patients when we put them on, um, and they've got any hint of uh, renal dysfunction, we push early for initiating CRT with these guys um, as soon as we put them on. Um, so you'll have nephrology who wants this set of labs every four hours, and then you want critical care who wants this every six. And so 
Um, as a prudent nurse, that's where I feel like you should say, hey, look, no, do we really need every four hours? Let's go six with this, and I'm going to time everything all together. Don't just be, you know, okay, this one, this doc told me to do this. Use some common sense with it mm -hmm. um, yeah, and kind of cluster your yeah. um, blood draws together. Yeah, absolutely. Lab, lab sampling hemorrhage is real. Exactly. No, really, it's true. It's Everybody true. should be treated like a Jehovah Witness patient or a pediatric patient. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't just throw generic things at the patient, hypovolemia, or whatever, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. be more specific. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, again, trickle feeding these patients early on to minimize gut irritation and reduce risk for GI bleeding. The critical care guys will look at you when they're like, when we ask about this in rounds, hey, I want to start feeding this patient. Um, again, what kind of patients are we putting these on? Not healthy patients, already stressed patients. Um, and, you know, why let that be a deterrent? Because then here goes your doc saying, oh, look, now they got a GI bleed because we put them on ECMO. Uh, we, I know we shouldn't have put them on. So something as simple as feeding them um, early on um, to prevent everything that you, you know, every potential negative um, effect that could happen. Now, is this steak and potatoes? Or? Absolutely. We are at the Woodlands. With some beer? Yes. <laughs> um, and again, utilizing PPIs, it sounds simple, but you know, you have somebody that's super sick, you've got 10 drips in the room, they're cannulated, and somehow the simple stuff always gets missed. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so that's why I wanted to throw that up there. Um, Again, What's PPI? Uh, proton pump inhibitors, protonics, okay. Oh, okay. you know, protect gotcha. that gut. Um, collaborate with the physician and the perfusion team to maintain the lowest possible threshold, especially if you foresee the patient's going to require an extended period of time on, uh, on therapy. Again, that's initiating. And then, of course, when we start talking about weaning and reducing flow, you have to know that balance of, all right, I've got lower flow states. Now I know I need to run a little bit higher. Uh, how old is my circuit? Yeah, yeah. So now you're three weeks in, and yeah. it's the same oxygenators when you started, and now I'm trying to run it at two liters. You may yeah. or may not have a problem. Post-oxygenator gases. You, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, everything's great, we're weaning down, but now you need to see how well is my device functioning. Yeah. So you need to do that in, uh, you know, in comparison with what you're doing to give them the best benefit. Don't worry, in our program, we would never have an oxygenator on for three weeks. <laughs> never going to happen. <laughs> Um, oops, sorry. Um, maintain platelet count thresholds. So I asked my docs early on, hey, where do we want to be? Um, uh, just kind of general guideline, greater than 20,000 in non-bleeding patients and upping that to greater than 50,000 in bleeding patients. Again, taking a proactive um, approach to managing these patients. Don't wait um, until your platelet count is non-existent and then wonder why there's an issue. Um, and then the other thing that I'll ask for is a um, H&H threshold. And, you know, at what point do you want me to transfuse? And just getting that ahead of time, having it, I mean, I literally write it on the board in my room. Um, so I'm not calling my doc in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got my blood set up and ready to go. Um, Perfect and, type and cross. That's yeah. a big thing I see. They don't oh. predict that. You're like, they're going to bleed. We drew labs, and this is what's going to happen. <coughs> Can we go ahead and type and cross because we're going to need to transfuse at some point? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there should never be a reason that a type and cross, and it should not be current and renewed every three days on these patients. Exactly, yeah. but how many times do you see that, hey, we need to get two units, oh, well, we need to type in some screen and send it to them and 
Yeah, absolutely unacceptable. I mean, it happens at my facility and somebody... Especially if you have a, 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 a issue occur yesterday during my presentation, I talked about, you know, uh, circuit design and safety and when you have ports that are there and I showed some pictures of, uh, of an operating room, but it wasn't a surgical mishap. It was a uh, an ECMO mishap of the, po fortunately, the positive sign, a line come off and uh, mm -hmm. blood went everywhere. And it was a big mess. And that patient, that can happen. And now that patient needs to be transfused fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have them type it crossed, so it's going to be O negative, but why do you want to do that? Yeah. And what if you don't have O negative? Or it's going to be whole blood. Mm -hmm. or, or it's going to be whole blood, whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's one of those things with experience in running these patients that you get to know, hey, that's one of those no-nos that is not uh, allowed to expire. Um, and um, always, it seems like a simple thing, but maintaining normothermia in your patient. Uh, again, um, whether you have a, a Foley temp sensing probe or you put a rectal probe in these patients, I think like a lot of times temperature is one of those things that people just don't think about. Um, these aren't patients that you're monitoring every four hours and watching fluctuations. No, you're watching them every hour um, yeah, and using your heater cooler. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, using your heater cooler to um, maintain your patient temp. Um, it seems like a very simple thing, but you know, normal thermic patients don't bleed as bad as cold patients bleed. Right, cold blood don't clot. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Questions? What happened there? <laughs> um, yeah, I have a lot of questions. Actually, Nate Bader. Now, uh, let's let's stick on this subject. Nate had a question for the previous one too, but um, uh, on the <laughs> hemoglobin threshold, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, my next slides are are going to be a little bit interesting with this too. But you know, why are we why are we um, running hemoglobins of uh, of twenty one and twenty four? I mean, is that enough? How, how do, do do any of us measure DO2? Mm -hmm. uh, we do in ours, because we have pulmonary groups that come through. They mm -hmm. measure everything like that. Mm -hmm. I can't say it's standardized, you know, every four hours we're measuring that, mm -hmm. oxygen extraction, et cetera. But, um, no, I think I still think it's done. Mm -hmm. But uh, that for me, experience, and it's with bypass, too, I don't, I don't like the high crit. Uh, with our bad patients, they, they want it on the higher side. We're not talking bad now. Just I know, but I'm saying mm -hmm. these are the same patients. So for coagulation reasons, though, um, and flow for us, I just I see a better difference. I mean, if you're running your blood gases and, and you look and you see your saturation on the monitors, 90 and above, 95 and above, and you get your gas that comes back and your PO2 is 150 and above, which, which is usually greater than that. Um, to me, those are good indicators. That's not always a good indicator of extraction, but then you can run a venous gas. And so if you have those three, I, I don't see what the big issue is. I, I like that better flow, better capillary perfusion. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's, a, but, but okay. So what's your minimum? Why do you say there's better capillary perfusion? What's your crit now? Mine's 48, what's uh, yours? I, I don't know, I haven't. It's over 40. Yeah. 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 Yours is probably, yours yeah, probably 40 as well. You know, females tend to run a little bit lower, but not that much, you're both healthy individuals. But you're not running it through a device either. The device isn't what the, the 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 holes in that device are much bigger than a red blood cell than a capillary. I know. But so you know, I, I just don't understand. What do we run it at? What what do we do? Let me ask you. What what do we do at where we where we do a lot of ECMO together? What what's our normal 
you know, hematocrit that we're comfortable with? So 27 to 30, and then mm -hmm. after that, um, you've got to look at your patient. You know, mm -hmm. do they need carrying capacity? Are they still requiring pressor support? So 27 support? to 30. Mm -hmm. You? Same thing. It, it depends on the patient, but no, mm -hmm. no, but it's 20, It's on the higher side, but that's still 27 to 8 hemoglobin. No, but what do you like? Oh, I like it. I like but running 27 is 9, and yeah, 30 I like, is 10. Probably 26, 27. Okay, right well, that's not too bad. Yeah. Is that what you guys did over at your old place? Um, 27 to 30. Mm -hmm. I mean, we like to put 10 and 30 as a, a goal, mm -hmm. but you kind of work around your individual patient. Mm -hmm. yeah. I get just real uncomfortable when I see it 21, mm -hmm. and I've had people tell me, we're, we're not transfusing unless we get down to ni under 19. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's too low. Yeah. No, I've never had for that. For a variety of reasons. Maybe on, on bypass, though, yeah. they would say that, but I've never had that with ECMO, ever. Mm -hmm. Even on bypass, I think it's too low. Depends on what you're, I mean, we're, we're doing everything for them, you know. We have a yeah. heart that's being revascularized. Mm -hmm. Lungs that are collapsed. Whether or not. We're ventilating for them. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether or not that revascularization um, improves, which it should, cardiac function, they're still, even with del nido cardioplegia, they're still experiencing an insult to the heart. Mm -hmm. And now we come off bypass with a hematocrit of 20 or 21, they're third space, they're full of fluid, they have to be diuresed, and they now the heart has to work harder to pump the blood fast enough to get enough O2 out um, to, the, to the tissues. And, you know, I mean, I understand transfusions are troubling on their own merit, but I just really think that that is as bad, if not worse. What about... I mean, as soon as you come off bypass, you should have some kind of cell saver blood to give back. And then if you're able to bring them up with that, then mm -hmm. you haven't exposed them to a transfusion That's unnecessarily. True, but it depends on the, your technique that you use. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that for some people who come off bypass with a reservoir full of volume that they can now sell, send to the cell saver, which I think is a bad idea, but you get the red blood cells back, but you've thrown away the platelets, you've thrown away the plasma and the effluent and all the other clotting factors and the COP capacity, because that's, you know, those proteins are, are very important for that and it's replaced with saline. Um, so I think third spacing is exacerbated because of that. Um, if you ultrafiltrate on pump and get your level low enough to where you just have enough volume to come off bypass and then flush your circuit, you, I feel like you manage, at least I do feel, that I man maximize my hematocrit and uh, concentration of platelets and clotting factors, but they can always add some, there's enough room for them to add some fluid resuscitation, crystalloid fluid resuscitation or albumin or something like that if necessary. But I feel like heart surgery patients, critically ill patients, ECMO patients, VAD patients, we don't want to give transfusions for nothing but I do feel that this concept of blood conservation versus sensible transfusion management is, is, is an ill-advised uh, concept because I think that you, can, we will never, you cannot survive in critical care medicine without the ability to transfuse. Mm -hmm. That's as simple as that. Well, part of that is knowing your particular patient 
taking size into factor. I mm -hmm. mean, are you altering your circuit, you know, mm -hmm. to try to accommodate for those smaller patients? Mm -hmm. Are you monitoring mm -hmm. your blood volume throughout the case? You're not, you're, maybe you have a, a you know, ultrafiltration device available immediately. You know, you're anticipating that before mm -hmm. you get them mm -hmm. fully diluted. Mm -hmm. you know, especially with, you know, cardioplegia that's a lot of crystalloid, you know, whether it be Del Nido or whatever, are mm -hmm. you anticipating that? Are you taking care of that when it's happening mm -hmm. so that when you do come off bypass, you are as concentrated as you can be, and then you're not going to lose, you know, all that stuff uh, going over to the cell saver. Mm -hmm. I, th I think if you, if you have constant management of your uh, hematocrit while you're on pump, you're still going to get probably one to two units of cell saver afterwards, and sometimes that can be just enough to bring them up to where you want to be mm -hmm. and you're not having to transfuse them. Mm -hmm. it, I think, absolutely, I think it comes down to technique. But um, I, I do want to say though, it, ECMO and uh, cardiopulmonary bypass patients are a little bit different management of patient population. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's the same mm -hmm. concept, but you when you're in ICU with ECMO, you can only do so much. Right. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. when you're in the OR and you're all cardiopulmonary bypass, you have a lot more play in window of what you're Clearly. doing. Sure. Yes, I would yes. agree with that so, too. But temperature is a factor because in ICU, we can only say warm the patient or cool the patient. In the OR, not only do we cool the patient or let them drift, then we give the cold cardioplegia to the heart. So there's literally, you give them that at six degrees, two mm -hmm. degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more protection. There's a mm -hmm. lot more protection strategy sure. there. Now, having said that, a technique that I like to implement when we come off, so depending on your volume, you have to have a certain amount to make it work, but you come off and you know, you're giving volume, you're looking at CVP, you're talking anesthesia, you know, you don't want them to squeeze too much and, you know, tear some anastomosis. Mm -hmm. But providing all those things are okay and bleeding is okay, you're going to say, I bag mine. And so, because we, timing is a factor in the OR, even when we come off and they're still under anesthesia. So I say, I want to give this blood, we're giving blood, and, you know, they want to take out the aortic cannula. They want to start suturing mm -hmm. and closing up. So now, instead of sending it to the cell server, which is acceptable, I ask them, can I bag it up? So yes, it's still uh, anticoagulated blood, so sure. you may have to give a little bit of extra protamine. Sure. Mm -hmm. But now I just bagged up 600 and gave them 600 of the patient's whole blood. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not only does it not count as extra volume, so you can say, well, how many cells saver? Because they're trying to count volume loss. Or how much did we transfuse? Oh, no, this is their blood. So you don't even have to count that in there. You're just giving it back to them, but you're allowed anesthesia to do it at their own pace instead of, you know, right. they can trickle it. And in. as the patient needs volume. Instead of making right. a squeeze or dilate. Whole right. blood heme, essentially, that is theirs. Mm -hmm. That's a, it is autologous, mm -hmm. in essence. Right. Is, are there any questions in the audience? We have a great audience participant here, Eric Bradovsky. Eric, come on up here. Yeah, bring your mic. We have a question from the audience. Come on, stand right over here behind, behind me, right next to... Kimberly and I. Eric Radovsky, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming over this morning. We appreciate you so much. Uh, yeah, I got a couple of questions here. You're talking to your mic. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, one question would be... Uh... Sorry. That's okay. With the increased survival rate uh, in France, is seeing the uh, on-scene ECMO, why hasn't the U.S. embraced the on-scene ECMO? That's a good question. Oh, absolutely. Well, we regulate a lot more here than it, than the rest of the world, which is a double-edged sword because because of that, it's a lot safer for you, um, you know, and it's a lot more difficult. They make a lot more money here as a physician than they do over there. I, I personally, I'm not talking down to them, but I don't want an EMT putting ECMO on somebody 
I want somebody who's critically skilled and trained, whether it be a cardiologist, a surgeon, I want one of those guys to put that in because well, that's where well, they know how to well, do wait it. Wait now, that's a good point, but it's not an EMT putting the cannulas in in France. They no, are I, physicians right. who are very trained at cannulating uh, uh, vessels who are riding, who get on the ambulance and go with the crew. So, no, I don't want somebody who is not trained in vascular, mm -hmm. you know, insertion of cannulas, especially when they're massive, mm -hmm. you know, if we remember the video. Um, I want somebody who knows what they're doing. But I think he's got a very good point. That is that we are much more highly regulated, much more regulated mm -hmm. here in the United States. Mm -hmm. There's also a cost issue. Cost, huge training. France is a country yes. about this Sheer big, size. Yeah. and you know, France fits into the northeast sector of the United States. You know, the great New England states, and the United States is 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 huge and enormous. And they're only doing it in Paris, and only in a few areas. They'll go, but not every patient is going to have that afforded to them. But those patients that do, they're seeing these results. It's going to be studied now. With that said, University of Michigan is currently uh, preparing their protocol to do this as a pilot project up there in Ann Arbor. So mm -hmm. I think we're going to see it eventually here in the United States. I think it's too great of a liability risk. Well, it's getting the physicians, having enough physicians yeah, that are trained to do yeah. that. Yeah, but I mean, you're talking to somebody who's making, and it's not always money, but it is in this situation. You're going to pay somebody $750,000 a year to ride in the back of an ambulance? Well, they don't. The, the ambulance is in a particular location. It's in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And then when the call goes out that they have a sudden cardiac event, then they all go to that ambulance. It's a response and team. Go. It's a response yeah. team. They're mm -hmm. not just riding around in the back of the ambulance. No, I get that. You, gotta, you need to look at this. But no, no, I read really it. It's really a pretty decent and program. I've seen the videos. I guess what I'm saying is that's just, it's such a liability, you know, here. I mean, you ought to call dispatch and ask him, how many uh, Amy's do you have or suspected Amy's do you have every day mm -hmm. in the greater Houston area? 1,000? 1,500? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So imagine how many physicians that is just for that right Yeah, but there. that's an AMI. That's not a sudden cardiac death where they're resuscitating them in the grocery store. There is a big difference. No, you come in I'm, with an AMI, what I'm saying you've is got the door to, 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 uh, to, to uh, lab time, the mm -hmm. door to, what am I trying to say? Door, door, to, balloon door to balloon time. time. Yeah, yeah door to balloon time. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's the, the metric there, and that's shown to be very successful. You know, the golden hour for a soldier that gets injured on the battlefield, same kind of concept. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't, I mean, you can, but you can't argue with the fact that there, when you look at patients who have a sudden cardiac event in the cath lab, I mean, I'm sorry, in the street, who are brought in under resuscitation, the thumper pounded on their chest, and you take that same group of patients and they're put on eCPR in the field and brought in that those patients have a higher survival rate. I mean, that's just facts. Well, yeah, because you're, you're, you're getting the perfusion. But again, like I'm saying, we know, hey, they're having an episode, but the person next to them says, I think they're having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Send the team out there. Yeah, yeah, you're going to say, well, they're not, so we didn't have to put them on ECMO. It's going to go back to, well, they would have made it. They didn't, you didn't need to go out there. But now, how are you differentiating in a large populated area the difference between a cardiac episode and not losing consciousness? 
I mean, not everybody has an EKG on. No, but I'll tell you this. Yeah. So it is complicated. I think the real reason is liability, if you really want to sure. feel about it. In the United like States, absolutely. In yeah. France, you aren't going to be sued for it if the patient doesn't make it um, because they're socialized medicine and you just can't sue like that. It doesn't happen. Um, but here, they sue for everything. If you saved their life but they lost their leg, they're going to sue you. And that has actually happened mm -hmm. where they lost their, they, they saved their life but lost their leg and they were, and people were sued. That's happened right here in Houston. Mm -hmm. And I know that who it happened to, you do too. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very real problem. Um, but I think that what the translation for this is for me here in the United States is more emergency rooms having the ability mm. to do um, rapid eCPR on a patient that comes in, emergency cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or uh, 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 mechanical uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. In other words, putting them on ECMO uh, to support their circulatory system until you figure out what to do with them. I think that that is much more feasible here in the United mm -hmm. States, even in places that don't typically do ECMO simply to save their life as an emergency department procedure so that and have those strategically positioned mm -hmm. and then those patients get transferred to a different place that can do something more with the patient once a decision is made. In other words, it's used as a bridge to decision. Mm -hmm. Save yeah. the patient's life if it's salvageable and you got it saved, you have them stable, now evaluate the patient for viability. Mm -hmm. If they're viable, do something else with them. If they're not, you got to turn it off and let them go. Yeah, but it needs to be the same thing with a selected number of facilities yeah. that will actually put the correct patients right. on. I think, well, I think you have to be a level two trauma feasible. center at the very least. Yeah. Right. I don't think if you're I not a level you need two to trauma have center, a, you should a team be doing of it. hospitals if you're going to implement this. Yes. Because the logistics alone, so you say, you know what, we're going to go to Methodist downtown. Mm -hmm. That's going to be our, our trial hospital. That's great. But we, know, we all know how emergencies work. So, and legally how they work, you don't go, everybody, well, you got to go to Methodist. I'm on the north side of Houston. Mm -hmm. You got to go to Methodist because we're our, our EMT guys, physician, whomever putting you on ECMO got to take you there or they don't want you. Or you pass 17 hospitals on the way and legally you're supposed to stop at the closest one yeah. to your needs. Mm -hmm. So I think you'd have to have a, a team of people, like I a team of should, hospitals. They're going to have to be strategically Correct. positioned around so, the city just for our sheer yeah. geographic size. Now, one thing that I, that I will say is, uh, you know, if somebody's witnessed CPR somewhere, I, I do think there's a, a factor that could be played in there to say we can meet you versus you coming here. CPR in progress coming from where? And, well, you know what? We got a team that we can dispatch in the area. We'll come meet you, put them on ECMO. I think that's a good probability mm -hmm. of possibly happening mm -hmm. for ECMO mm -hmm. on the street. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or sporting next, events. Yeah. Next question. I think they're all good points. Mm -hmm. All very good points. Uh, my other question is uh, what other future trends do you see in the ECMO market? future trends in the ECMO market? Well, that's a good question. And I think that we sort of have been beating that one up. And I think for me anyway, I, I see the future trend being increased use of it because I think it's going to be used sooner. I think we're gonna find that using it sooner benefits the patient. Um, so I think utilization will go up, but duration will go down because you won't have as, as many should. patients who you can't now get off of ECMO yeah. that just stay and languish mm -hmm. and consume all of the resources. Mm -hmm. Well, and don't you also think that we're going to have, I think the trend will be instead of so many places putting people on ECMO who 
-hmm. maybe don't have the experience, don't have the management skills with mm -hmm. reimbursement changing, mm -hmm. that's going to decrease and we're going to start seeing real ECMO centers. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's going to happen because yeah. the reimbursement for, you know, the, the success rate is going to be looked at and just because you can doesn't mean you should or they're going to allow you to. Right. In, in regard, yes, I agree with you 100%. Again, taking it that step farther, I think you're 100% right, although I think reimbursement, because there was a big, big change in reimbursement. Everybody, I think, is aware of it. They made draconian cuts mm -hmm. in the reimbursement, and I think it's going to be readjusted up. However, and with that said, only 10%, and I learned this from your dad, by the way, only 10% of patients who get ECBO our Medicare patient, Medicare recipients, mm. because ECMO is a young man's game, mm. or woman's <laughs> game. It's a young person's game. You rarely ever see 85-year-old grandpa getting put on ECMO. It does happen. <laughs> I know it happens, but it's rare. Usually it's the 56-year-old, 47-year-old, 38-year-old. So I think, yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I also feel, as I stated previously, that you're going to see emergency departments you're going to see that happening mm -hmm. you're going to see and i think that cost is that that reimbursement's going to get up adjusted they're not going to leave it like that it was a whole there was a whole scheme associated with that i won't belabor the point here but there was a whole scheme associated with it i think we all are well aware of who was involved in it but mm -hmm. i'll leave it unsaid i personally think reimbursement is going to continue to go down we're going to see a trend more of... We can't go down further than it is right now. Currently, it's upside down. If you if you were had a Medicare patient that you put on ECMO that was not centrally cannulated, the hospital will lose so much money that if they even did four or five ECMOs in a year, legitimately, on Medicare patients, they would go bankrupt. It's not going to stay there. It's a, it's, it's a ridiculous thing. And of course, we can have this discussion later, and we will. When, when, right. when, the, re, when, the, re, when the correction gets made... We'll come back on and we'll discuss that correction. Well, and you have to promise see, that you're going to be here. No, I'll be here. But I'm going to stand. I'm, I'm going to take it, whatever it is. I, I just think it's going to continue to go don't down get because scared. things. They, don't get scared. The government, you don't, you don't ever see them say, you know what? We should pay them more for that. You're just not going to see that. Well, I no, think but the cuts were ridiculous. From 101,000 to 8,500. If you're thumping on the person's chest, mm -hmm. 8,500 doesn't even cover the cost of cannulating that patient. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's, it's the cost of on one ECMO circuit, depending like on which on one you use, yeah. could be fourteen thousand mm -hmm. dollars. It's not going to happen. They're, they're going to put a squeeze on them and say we need it at a cheaper cost, just like big supplies. Yes, but I think it's going to go. I, I don't think it's going to be any lower than reimbursement for one of the, you know, Archimedean screw pump devices out mm -hmm. there. I won't even say their name, um, which is about 75,000 DRG 215, mm -hmm. which is, and their device costs anywhere between 28 and 37,000, depending on which one you're using the, the 2.5 or the, or the 5.0 and the CP mm -hmm. is in the middle. Um, but you know, would be that as it may, the CP has to be put in surgically. It's a little more complicated. Um, and, you know, they're finicky, too. They're not, they're not, and if you have right heart, again, we have right heart, you need an oxygenator. I mean, it just becomes a very complex system. And I think with STS, with the other manufacturers of the ECMO devices involved in this, I don't think they're going to be able to, they, 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 there's no way the public will eventually get a hold of this if CMS does not negotiate in good faith with STS Right. And they're a powerful organization. I wouldn't mess with STS. No, I agree with okay. you. But when I say finance and reimbursement, you, get, you can't look at it as 
the government saying we're going to give you a dollar for this procedure all they're going to do is manipulate the technique around that dollar so what i'm saying now is okay you know what we're going to give you your fifty thousand dollars we're going to go to that it's going to be probably 80 to 90 is what right. i believe but what i'm saying is now they're going to manipulate other things around it so we're going to give you 50 if you have perfusion staff yeah oh but you want to go to the nursing model we don't reimburse 100 percent for the nursing model they can take care of them but they're not highly as I think that's wishful thinking for people like you that don't believe that nurses, nurse ECMO specialists need to be used. The fact is there are not enough perfusionists to manage all of the ECMO coming. No, now, if ECMO right. goes away, that's yeah. a different story. Mm -hmm. And I love you, but I fundamentally disagree with you on that point. I don't think they're going to say that at all. And I really think... I think it may not be that exact point, but I think that is going to be how they manipulate it. They're going to have certain parameters that have that. to be. I think it'll be duration. I think it'll be some other factors involved, but I don't think they're going to say who is managing the ECMO patient is going to determine your reimbursement. I just don't believe that. Well, and it, I think it works the same way for physicians. They have to round every day to get that dollar, and you can't have a, you if you're ex-physician and you're, pulmonary critical care, you have to round on that patient every day to get that full reimbursement. That's their patient. This is the hospital's patient. Yes. This is this nurse's patient. This is this perfusionist patient. It's going to get back down to the dollar. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. They're going to well, that's another discussion <laughs> for another day. Uh, it's another, that's a whole session we're going to do. You have any other questions? I'm good. That was it? Did we answer your questions? Yeah, I answered them. Okay, so what are you going to do when you uh, decide your, you know, what your career path is going to be? What is it? You know, I'm just, I'm interested in the medical field and I'm going to, you know, look into more jobs, you know, mm -hmm. in the medical field and see what interests me the most. Mm -hmm. uh, so why isn't your question, is the medical industry a good industry to get into? Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, obviously, it's a good, it's a good industry to, to be in, you know, see uh, my dad and what he's in and see what y'all, obviously what y'all talking about and, you know, it seems like a good, uh, good industry to be a part of. Mm -hmm. So what do you like more? Do you like the, the, the clinical support for a particular device like your dad is, being an expert at that particular therapeutic modality and facilitating and helping physicians with managing their patients? Or do you like what we do, which is more direct patient care? More, and, uh, more direct patient care. And arguing amongst each other about how things are going to go, because <laughs> that's what we do really well. We argue a lot. Yeah. And that's what makes this job so much fun, yeah. you know, is we can argue about things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, good. Thank you very much. We appreciate you coming appreciate up. It. Thank you. <laughs> Anybody else in the audience, in the huge audience that we have out there? Man, there's hundreds and hundreds of people. Okay, so how about a, you guys want to take a, 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 a funding such a program, ECMO to go would also be a huge issue. We agree with that comment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Funding would be tough. We agree with you, listener. Thank you very much for the question. Okay, so how about a five-minute break or so, and we can use the restroom and... Uh, Get some more coffee or tea and mm -hmm. come back and knock out this last one. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Break time. Okay, and welcome back, everybody. Uh, don't forget, please, if you haven't done so already, uh, subscribe on YouTube. Very important. Got to get to that thousand. Do the Facebook thing. Share, follow, tweeter, and do whatever you do with that thing, and then whatever. And just do all that stuff, all right, for me, okay? So my next talk, actually, I need to make a correction on our website, and it really had to do with the 
uh, autocorrect. It messed it up. But if you see it, it says molecular adsorption therapy, and that should read adsorption with a P, not a B. So please forgive me for that. Uh, it was my error, really, when I, when I typed it. I think it just autocorrected it. And then uh, I sent it off to uh, everybody to type in to make those cards and stuff. So my mistake on that, however, let's go to my cover slide, which has it written down properly. So you all don't think that I really don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, I'd like to start this talk uh, with this uh, quick story here. Roger Bone, he was a physician, proposed a new paradigm to explain the pathogenesis of the septic process, taking into account the complexity and chaotic nature of the septic response. The septic network of events was viewed as a complex overlapping network of interactions designed to help the body handle the severe assault of infection. He recognized that this process, while intended to benefit the host, could potentially cause severe injury that could culminate in death. He suggested there were a series of five stages to the sepsis cascade that could eventually result in multi-organ uh, dysfunction and failure, if not properly countered by a compensatory anti-inflammatory response. The initial stage was local reaction at the site of the infection or injury. The, this pro-inflammatory response is designed to limit the initial injury and prevent spread. The response will generate stage two, the early compensatory anti-inflammatory response, or CARS, to maintain immunologic balance. The third stage occurs when the vigor of the pro-inflammatory SIRS response predominates over the CARS response and results in progressive endothelial dysfunction, increased microvascular permeability, and produces a coagulopathy along with activation of the coagulation system. Of course, that sounds like DIC, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The fourth stage occurs when the compensatory anti-inflammatory response, again CARS, becomes excessive and can result in immunosuppression or immune paralysis. Again, you've got a white blood cell count of 1.2. We've seen that a few times. Mm -hmm. As exaggerated CARS response can make the individual susceptible to nosocomial or secondary infections, which can reinitiate the septic cascade. The fifth stage, of course, is marked by multi-organ system uh, dysfunction, failure, and has been termed immunologic dissonance and is manifest as an inappropriate or out of balance immune system that results from persistent dysregulation of the SIRS and CARS response. And I'm going to tell you a little something about this guy, Roger Bone. Never heard of him before in my life. And that's the beauty of doing these programs is when you start doing all of the reading that it takes and all of the studying that it does. You know, you have a basic understanding of something, but if you're going to sit up here and talk about it, you sort of have to know more about it than just the basic understanding of it, really. And I started learning about this guy. And it's an incredible story about a person. So I'm going to play this video, if I may. And I want you to really pay attention to who this guy 
was. I have control of the thing. I'll turn it on. You guys ready? Physicians often feel their responsibility to dying patients is simply to provide good medical care. But increasingly, they're being told that they should do more. And our medical editor, Dr. Tim Johnson, is joining us this morning with the story of a remarkable physician who is doing more for terminally ill patients and for a very good reason. Tim, good morning. Well, as you know, Charlie, the doctor with whom I recently sat down in Chicago is himself dying. And because of that, he's found he now has some special insight to offer other doctors. And he's been doing so with both deeds and words. For the second time in my life, I face the prospect of premature death. Barring a miracle, I have few doubts about the outcome. But I am not afraid. I know only months remain. As a critical care physician for nearly 30 years, Dr. Roger Bone learned all he could about dying patients. But now, dying is his own reality. And he is recording his final journey in a series of moving personal essays published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. One of the things I have learned from the process of my dying is that the most important things in the process of my living were not what I, and most others, usually think are important. The author of numerous publications and the recipient of some of medicine's highest honors, Dr. Bone had already faced the prospect of dying before. As a young army surgeon in Vietnam, he helped remove a live 40-millimeter grenade from a soldier's abdomen. Bone survived, and for putting his own life at risk to save another, he won a Medal of Valor. But now, the time bomb is inside his body. No life is without gift even when it may seem giftless to others. Cancer has allowed me a measure of enlightenment. The cancer, in this case kidney cancer, was discovered three years ago. The tumorous kidney was removed, and Bone believed the danger had passed. But 10 months later, the 55-year-old father of two learned that the cancer had spread to his lungs and bones. Determined to beat it, Dr. Bone began aggressive experimental therapies as well as conventional treatments of chemotherapy and radiation, which he still undergoes daily. His survival has already defied the odds. Most patients with renal cell cancer, they may die from one to six months. Now we're talking about three years later, I'm still alive and I think part of that is because I'm not gonna let myself die. Uh, I mean, I'm going to go down fighting one option is what we can do is do a complete rotation, but we don't spare the spinal cord at all. And we because he takes daily doses of morphine to ease his considerable pain, Dr. Bone no longer practices medicine. And with a large tumor circling his spinal cord, doctors say he will likely become paralyzed. But for now, Dr. Bone spends his days at the hospital writing and counseling other terminally ill patients. Can you remember how you used to approach 
terminally ill patients in your medical practice and how you do it today and what's different? I took care of the needs, the medical needs of the patient and the physical needs of the patient. But I don't think I was emotionally involved as much as I should have. And I think the medical profession needs to be much more emotionally involved. Equally important, he says, is helping the patient communicate his or her fears and needs with family members. His most effective treatment, he says, has been the time shared with his wife, Rosemary, and with his daughters, Mary Catherine and Cynthia. This is a time that he could be totally inverted and only think of himself. And he is thinking of the patients and their families and what they are dealing with. And I really admire that because I don't know if I could do that myself. He really has a message, he has things that he wants to tell us, and we want to get as much out of this time as we can, you know, because this is the legacy that's, that's going to live on, and this is what's very important to us. My father never told me he loved me, you know. I'm sure he did, uh, but he never told me that. Uh, so that's been very important to me to make certain that I don't know the millions of times I've told my children that I love you, you know, so they know. You know. You're looking um, good now. Well, I'm working on it. Good. Hair is coming in. Hair is coming in. I don't know about pretty. <laughs> As for his legacy at work, Dr. Bone has convinced Chicago's Rush Presbyterian Hospital, where he once served as dean, to create an institute for the education and study of the dying patient. He's the only one that I know of who has, through his own confrontation, with death, turn that to try to influence a whole profession to deal with this issue rather than escape from it. And that's a great contribution. I think it is very important that the doctor and the nurse and the health professional recognize the emotional aspects that someone who is terminally ill, as I am, uh, goes through. I think one should ask the patient, do you have peace of mind about what is going to happen to you after your death? What do you say to your fellow doctors who say, well, it sounds great in theory, but you know, we're so busy, managed care is forcing us to spend less and less time with patients. Uh, I've got to leave that up to other people whose job it is, the ministers, the social workers. I just don't either have the time or the emotional resources myself to do it. It's no excuse whatsoever. And we're talking about life and death. We're talking about peace at the end of uh, your life. Are you at peace? Is there a more important question to ask at all, you know? 56 years old when he died. He's the one who came up with this. The relevance to this, what I read earlier, is that Everything that I'm going to talk about stems from what this fella did, what this man did, this giant did. He was, he, he was 56 when he died, six years younger than I currently am now. And he has textbooks. He was an intensive care medicine, a critical care medicine doc that, that uh, developed this SIRS you know, concept and understanding of it that we currently use today. <clears throat> Dean at Rush University, uh, 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 and 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 died at 56. 
in numerous studies and numerous articles that he wrote, pulls out a 40, uh, a live grenade out of a guy and gets a Medal of Valor. You don't get the Medal of Valor for, 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 you know, for, for, you know, scratching, scratching your leg on a, on a tree. That's serious business. How do you, how do you, how do you replace a guy like that? I mean, and that's what I like about doing these talks, is the profound, the people with such profound commitment and, intel, and intellect, you know, to be able to do all that he did and, and have the family that he had, and then go through what he went through. Remarkable story. So, hemopurification is basically um, designed to overcome certain limitations that exist. So. Dialysis, which was, you know, it's basically the same as it's been since the 1950s, all really unchanged in almost 70 years, is good for diffusive clearance of ions, metabolites, and so forth. It's intermittent. It uh, is limited in molecular weights that it can really do anything with, which are uh, about, which is about 6, 000, or 6 kilodaltons or 6,000 daltons. It's, however, very ineffective with large molecular weights or anything that is a protein-bound mediator. So CVVH, which is also known as CRRT, is sort of the next generation that came up to try to deal with these patients who are, do have severe inflammatory response. Dialysis is of absolutely no value for it at all. SLED is of no value for it at all. It's a diffusive clearance technology that just simply does not work for patients who are in severe uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Uh, but it does clear convectively, so you will get larger molecules it is continuous versus intermittent, which is very good. You know, the kidney, if you think about it, works 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It doesn't only work three days a week or two days a week, as the case may be. It's pretty effective at molecular weights up to about 20,000 uh, Daltons. And I'll show you a graph, but that's still, you're starting to lose your clearance uh, rates with it once it gets to 20 and beyond 20 it really drops off fairly precipitously. More effective than intermittent uh, with larger molecular weights clearly uh, because of the convective therapy and dependent on pore size and technique. So if you run it very 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 slowly and you do CVVHD you're really not going to accomplish a whole lot. You have to use I think of course post filter replacement for those of you who don't know much about CRT, you just need to look that up. I'll try to give you some explanation of it. But um, if you don't run it well, the therapy really doesn't work that well. But the pore size is 50,000 kilodaltons or 50 kilodaltons or 50,000 daltons. We know uh, albumin is uh, at 66,000 uh, daltons so, or 60, yeah, 66,000 daltons. So you won't remove any, uh, uh, any proteins. Um, and that's a limitation of it. Now, hemoadsorption, on the other hand, does not depend on pore size. It is very effective at removing very large and protein-bound mediators. I'll show you that. And it is dependent on the adsorption column design. So that's the voodoo that is associated with hemoadsorption technology. 
So here is an example of diffusion. Of course, we know it's a concentration gradient. And here you see the uh, uh, more of a hemofiltration or CVVH, where it is a convective clearance, which relies, if you look on the left, you see the delta P or the pressure gradient pushing the water through the uh, 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 fibers and then into the ultrafiltrate. This is a low pressure, this is a higher pressure, and it forces the, the water, the plasma water, through the filter, creating uh, a concept called uh, solvent drag. And so you take this larger, and that's why you can get the larger molecules is because of that concept. So if you look here, the kidney will remove things down at the bottom here is your uh, 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 molecular size. And here on the left is your clearance percentage. And you see the kidney is very, very, very effective going all the way out to uh, where albumin is at 66,000. But obviously proteinuria is not good and your kidneys aren't supposed to remove protein. So you see that uh, just before the cutoff. Um, if you look here at the dialysis, it's very, very, very ineffective. Even at this level, at, at 5,000 Daltons, only 20% clearance. And so it's very good for electrolytes, metabolites, things like that, but it's just not good. Inflammatory mediators live in the range of about somewhere in the range of 12,000 to 20,000. A lot of the ones that are, that are uh, water water in the, essentially in the uh, plasma water, the protein bound, of course, are way out here and some of them are even way out here. So that's a concern. But convective clearance you see overcomes diffusive dialysis significantly. But again, it has to be done properly. But you see here at 20,000 Daltons, you're about 62% of clearance rate. So if you have something you're trying to remove at that level, myoglobin, for example, at 17,000 Daltons, you're going to be over here at about 78%. There's maybe even a little bit less, maybe let's say 70%. And so if you, uh, you, you will clear it over time, but uh, it's not as effective okay, as the uh, kidney is going to be. So adsorption is the removal of dissolved substances from solution using adsorbents such as activated carbon with these different, as I said, voodoo substances in it. Um, and what happens is it's not ad adsorbing like a sponge, it's adsorbing shun adsorbing ping or, or yeah adsorption which is the molecule sticking to something and usually these things as i said it's the charcoal is frequently used but there's other things they put in it to affect different charges and so forth so there's some science associated with that but you have an we talked about this this is your basically sir's response and what happens We've seen all of these things. These cytokines like TNF or tumor necrosis factor and IL-1 and IL-6, very important. And I'll show you a couple of slides here that are critical to this. So if you look over here at IL-6, IL-6 is running well over 20,000, almost 30,000. And if you look over here, tumor necrosis factor uh, timer, trimer, I'm sorry, is sitting over here at 52,000. So you're really out there pretty far. And uh, look at free hemoglobin. So plasma-free hemoglobin is way out there. So it's very hard to remove this through anything but the kidney. And as we know, it's extremely nephrotoxic. And that's a, uh, that's a, that's a big problem. 
So what I want to do is to discuss this is, is, is do this case report. Now, I reached out to Dr. Traeger. I called him uh, in Germany, and uh, unfortunately, he couldn't do this, uh, but he did communicate with me via, via, via email. And what I've decided to do is read his case report and look at what his findings were and what they did with this uh, very interesting technology. Now, with that said, this technology really isn't that new, but it's just now coming, I think, into vogue. But it's been around for quite a while. So their patient is a 45-year-old male. He had a small bowel obstruction due to torsion. He was scheduled for surgery at anesthesia. He uh, got very unstable. He ended up uh, with a, uh, an aspiration uh, during induction, during intubation. He developed severe SIRDS, ARDS, multi-organ failure. They had to go on ECMO. They had CRRT. They were giving antibiotics and low-dose steroids. Uh, and due to his rapid deterioration in clinical status, concurrent surge of inflammatory biomarkers, which they measured, and I'll be able to show you those, um, they decided that they were going to insert this molecular hemoadsorption filter from Cytosorb, and that's the one that seems to be very popular. There's several of them out there, uh, but this is the one that they were using. Um, and uh, with that said, the patient was very unstable. They were on a lot of pressors. They had capillary leak syndrome. They were in a tremendous amount of trouble. So SIRS is a common finding in the ECMO patient population. It frequently leads to multi-organ system dysfunction, uh, further complicating the treatment. You go into renal failure, you go into shocked liver, you, you know, all of the things that start to happen. And it has a very high mortality. SIRS diagnosis is a 30 to 50% mortality. And if you have more than one organ affected, uh, which is almost always the mortality, predicted mortality is 80%. So here's your basic you know, uh, uh, flow chart of infection, inflammation. If you successfully contain it, you resolve it and the host recovers. But if it becomes progressive inflammation, inflammatory response, uncontrolled infection with a secondary infection, you get the immune suppression, which is again, this comes directly from Dr. Bone, although this was designed by somebody else, uh, uh, re re reduced infection containment, endothelial damage, barrier dysfunction, epithelial dysfunction, barrier dysfunction, and multi-organ failure, hypoxemia, apoptosis, and irreversible changes. Eventually, you have host death. So in, in this uh, diagram here, there are some general variables, which you see there. And uh, 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 leukopenia is very common. Leukocytosis we see too. Uh, on an immune response, C-reactive protein being elevated. In fact, we had an ECMO patient uh, the other day, and I asked, I said, has anybody done a CRP on this patient? Mm -hmm. And they, uh, nobody had. Mm -hmm. So we went ahead and did a CRP, and it was 460. Wow. So it was rather mm -hmm. elevated. Um, that you'll find them, they'll either febrile or they're hypothermic. And so they can, they can uh, uh, find a variety of, of, of almost opposite um, diagnoses or findings, rather, 
but, uh, but um, a positive fluid balance is one that's very common. And positive fluid balance, I think that fluid overload is a grossly misappreciated uh, finding, that Anasarca is on its own merit, and I think the data does support that, is on its own merit lethal. Mm -hmm. you know, fluid overload is just, fun, is just fundamentally bad. In fact, I, there is a paper out, I can't remember who it's written by, but there's a paper out uh, that for every one liter of fluid overload that a critically ill patient has, their predicted mortality is increased by 10%. So when you have a, if you have a predicted mortality of, let's say, 40, okay, on a lot of our patients, you know, where we have 60% survival on ECMO, 40% mortality, you have 40% and you have them 10 liters fluid overloaded, now your predicted mortality is much, much, much higher. Right. And so fluid overload is a, is a real problem. Um, and then of course you have hemodynamic variables and organ dysfunction variables with tissue perfusion being what ultimately suffers with increased lactic acidosis and a lot of uh, bridging and shunting and decreased capillary uh, uh, refill. Current treatments are, of course, supportive measures, you know, treating what's happening. Um, CVVH, high volume CVVH has now come into uh, some interest with people where they're replacing enormous amounts. Usually you see uh, uh, ultrafiltration rates or replacement rates um, uh, uh, somewhere around 25 to 30 mLs per kilogram per hour. They're running that up to like 60 and 70 mLs per hour. So really super high uh, replacement volumes. The problem is that's, one, it's extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. Two, it's very, very, very labor intensive, mm -hmm. very difficult to achieve. And although I think a CRRT system that is integrated into a, an ECMO circuit Fails less, fails much less frequently than it would in a uh, central line, especially mm -hmm. if it was femoral. Um, it's still Im it's still imperfect, and there is a lot of risk when you're running it that fast. Mm -hmm. Your blood flow rate to achieve that kind of replacement is going to have to be at least 400 to 450 cc's per minute. You're not going to be able to run it at 200, which is what is typical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's going to be a real challenge now. The thing is, no matter how fast you run it, there has never been anyone that has ever detected any, for example, TNF-alpha or anything like that in the uh, ultrafiltrate. You will find some pro-inflammatory mediators, but they're generally the ones that are smaller in size that would come out with conventional anyway. But you do take more of them when you're replacing that much and flowing that much because mm -hmm. you're treating more blood and you're, constant, you're pulling off the plasma water just that much faster. And I think that's the reason. But they are using it and they are saying that they are seeing some positive results from it. But I'll keep going. Um, none directly remove pro and anti-inflammatory mediators, however, directly, okay? So that's a very important fact that you have to consider. When I say none directly, I mean you can't target anything. And again, these adsorption columns can be designed with various different voodoo associated with them that are this proprietary, and I just don't know enough about that to even discuss it. 
but it can specifically target various different inflammatory mediators so that it's, dis it's, it's, it's specifically or more directly removing those. Uh, going on with the case, the patient was 45 years old, bowel obstruction, pulmonary aspiration, progressive respiratory failure, was on VV ECMO, developed severe RV failure, and uh, was then put on VA ECMO after four hours. His condition worsened, diagnosed with severe exudative uh, ARDS uh, with alveolar edema, PaO2 was 49, PaCO2 was uh, 43, decreased lung compliance, vasoplegia, marked capillary leak, uh, and uh, AKI, uh, uh, AKI and uh, acute, renal acute kidney injury and acute renal failure requiring CVDH. He was leukocytopenic. Uh, he had a massive increase in inflammatory biomarkers. He was infected, clearly. He had E. coli. He had enterococci. Uh, uh, and uh, he failed uh, antibiotics and fungals. He was on them, prone bed, sepsis bundle with low-dose steroids. So he's in trouble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's his chest X or his CT, his chest CT. I mean, you can barely see some airspace here and a little bit of airspace okay. here, but that is pretty much 99.999% consolidation, that, mm -hmm. that lung is not able to do anything that it was ever intended to do. So here you see during these adsorption therapies, here is his uh, IL-8 is the triangle and the IL-6 is the, uh, is the uh, circle. And this was the inflammatory mediator biomarkers that they were looking, here is the level of them and you can see here as they started this therapeutic modality they both started coming down to a much lower level that's that's over a tenfold decrease and that's bordering on a uh, close to a tenfold a decrease so very significant decrease in inflammatory biomarker levels here you have his norepinephrine or levofed uh, usage so you see here, he was on extremely high dose levofed and then continued that and eventually dropped that off during this therapeutic modality and eventually came back down to where he did not need it at all. Uh, there were three consecutive treatments. You can see his fluid balance started off positive. It became very positive. He was uh, seven liters fluid overloaded by day three. Day four, he was back down to maybe six. But day five, he was equal, and day uh, five, yeah, day six, he was actually minus. So they were uh, going the, certainly going the right direction there. And the conclusion of the uh, author, Dr. Uh, Dr. Traeger, was that we believe that control over the patient's initial hyperinflammatory response was a key element in helping clinically stabilize the patient, allowing for organ recovery and ultimate survival. In this very challenging clinical case, we used all of the tools available to us to do so, including cytosorb, cytokines, ad adsorption, CVVH, VA ECMO, antibiotics, and steroids. Cytosorb being this uh, particular device he used, and it's, again, it's not the only one, but it's a concept, is the newest therapy in our toolkit and was safe and well-tolerated with no device-related adverse events and easy to implement as part of the CVVH circuit, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know another company who is doing the same thing 
that is uh, uh, developing a system that you can just branch off of your CRT circuit, remove the plasma, treat the plasma in the in the adsorption column, recast, and then ultrafiltrate the plasma water, replace it, reconstitute it back into the cells and back into the patient. And uh, that's the end of my slide. So let me just go through this if I can. So the difference between CVVH and hemoadsorption is that with CVVH, you're removing the plasma water. Mm -hmm. And again, you're 50,000 cutoff. When you do molecular or hemoadsorption or hemopurification or whatever you want to call it, um, you remove first the plasma from the red blood cells. The plasma then goes through an adsorption column and comes up. You then remove the plasma water from the uh, plasma and replace it. And then it reconstitutes into the red blood cells and goes back into the patient. So you're really, so you, you have the benefit of removing the evil humors, mm -hmm. these inflammatory mediators that CVVH cannot deal with, but then you also have the ability of treating it. So you want to do acid-base adjustments with bicarb-based solution that mm -hmm. CRT is very beneficial for. You have the potassium that may have been elevated. Now you get control of that. Other metabolites, you keep your sugars normal. All of the things, and you can also not replace as much of the fluid. So you can actually have fluid removal like you would ordinarily have with CVVH and then put it back into the red blood cells and back into the patient. And it seems like, you know, if, if you're going to remove inflammatory mediators that are 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, 70,000, 120,000 Daltons in, uh, in molecular weights, that this is the only way to do it. And based upon the research done by Dr. Bone and by all of the contemporary research since him originally describing mm -hmm. this, uh, that getting control of an out of control SIRS and CARS response, because basically one starts, the other one takes over, mm -hmm. tries to control it. The other one can't, it can't control it. The other one gets worse. It starts trying to control it more. Eventually, your positive anti-inflammatory process mm -hmm. is what becomes essentially dysfunctional and collapses and is no longer there. Now the SIRS can just go off and just do whatever it wants to do. And I've seen patients who had this and mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think would have benefited greatly from this, but we didn't have it and you can't, cannot, once it gets out of control, you cannot get it under control. Yeah, pretty difficult. Mm -hmm. Very difficult. So anybody here have any experience with this nice. technique? Mm -mm. No. But it sounds basically like they're, you know, <clears throat> when you donate a unit of blood and then they separate everything out, you know, this goes to here, this goes to yes. there. Or however they do it, they get plasma, FFP, et cetera. Sounds like this is like a bedside version of that. So you can take out what you want, put back in what you want, and give it back to the patient. Well, you're not taking any, you're only removing the, the, the mediators, you know, the plasma water perhaps, but you're mm -hmm. exchanging that. Uh, and it's all filter-based versus centrifugal-based. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think, again, that absorb, that adsorption column and what those beads are made of is very important. 
Um, I, they may be based with charcoal, but they do other things to mm -hmm. them to mm -hmm. make them do what they want it to do. And I think it's a really new, you know, I'm trying to at least get the get get some uh, uh, information out there on something that I think is highly germane to us in our industry mm -hmm. and also mm -hmm. us in our industry and also nursing in the ICU because you see way more septic patients than Absolutely. we do. Uh, we see the septic patients on ECMO, but you see a lot of septic patients that don't go on ECMO. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a new evolving uh, technology or, or industry mm -hmm. that is uh, 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 going to continue to grow. I'd like to know what they say about temperature, because, you know, when we train here for perfusion, we always learn that there's that threshold of temperature, warming and cooling with your reperfusion. You know, that's where IL-6 and those come in. So we would either cool down because, you know, some places still drift. We either go past the 34 degree mark, usually it's somewhere between 33 and 36 is where you start activating those. So I wonder what, in combination with cooling your patient down, mm -hmm. do, do you uh, decrease that inflammatory response quicker? Mm -hmm. That's a good question and I don't, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know, I don't know. Is it super expensive? And that's why we haven't seen a big push with it with you know like all the big surviving sepsis campaigns and like, why is it not being utilized? Mm -hmm. It actually, it is being utilized. It's being utilized there, the Cytosorb. Mm -hmm. It is available. Um, I think it's an education thing, predominantly. It's been around, actually, longer than people think. Um, Gambro has a system, which I, I don't like it. Um, and it is a little overly overpriced. These things are really designed to not be that complex. Mm -hmm. You want it to be simple, easy to use, and so forth. Um, Braun is coming out with a product that I think is going to compete very, very uh, nicely with the Gambro product line. You know, they've mm -hmm. been off the market for quite a while, and they have a new device in Europe. Again, it's the same old story. They can't get it here to the United States. They have to wait. Mm -hmm. You know, Baxter, that owns Gambro now, is suing them to block them from coming into the United mm -hmm. States on patent infringement lawsuits and all this kind of stuff. So it's just a big mess. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, who suffers is the patient because of economy and you know, and us, because we can't use tools that we think would really help and benefit our patients. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's the system that we have. But it does exist currently. And uh, there's another group out of Minnesota who is uh, developing a system that's going to be easily integrated into your typical CRRT circuit. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that uh, this is going to be something that we need. We're going to see more of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something we need to we need to learn more about and see how it can benefit some of our patients. Yeah, the Gambro product is, a, is called MARS, Molecular Adsorption uh, Recirculation uh, System. And there is a study out, um, which you might wanna look it up. You might have to Google the term, but there was somebody who wrote an article that said, no one's ever been saved by sending them to Mars. <laughs> and so it's kind of a play on, you know, mm -hmm. there's no life on Mars, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, so is it always used in combination with CVVH? Generally speaking, yes. Yes, it, it is. And uh, it's, it's, it's probably better used in it because those patients are going to have a multitude of derangements, which is going to include uh, acute kidney injury, acute renal failure, and probably be on CVVH first mm -hmm. before that this 
gets into the mix. Mm -hmm. But I imagine if you had, uh, you know, for example, uh, 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 I guess lupus or uh, or some mm -hmm. other um, uh, uh, Guillain-Barre or uh, myasthenia or crisis or something like that, uh, you know, that you could use. I mean, TPE, therapeutic plasma exchange, mm -hmm. is certainly something that's used. But if you could, instead of removing the patient's plasma, because that's the normal therapy for it, right? Yeah, yeah. plasma. You know, I was say, this is a cheaper if, modified version of plasmapheresis. Mm, yeah. Right. Well, I, yeah, but I, 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 yes. I mean, I think you could accomplish the same thing with plasmapheresis. It's probably really hard to phoresis a patient who is that critically mm. ill, but probably wouldn't, would it, it probably would benefit them, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't know the answer to that, another good question. Um, but uh, but um, I think that for the critically ill patient, this does, would, would have the same effect of removing those, those plasma-based uh, inflammatory mediators that are very big without removing the patient's plasma. And I think the volumes, the the amount of plasma that you would be able to remove at any one session would be ineffectual, at least I'm hypothesizing this, I'm thinking this, compared to being able to run their blood, their plasma through this adsorption column and just change out the adsorption column if it became oversaturated. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I learned about this I thought was very interesting too was that what they found was clearance of the inflammatory mediators that they wanted to remo remove, both pro and, 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 and uh, anti, was when their concentrations were super, super high, was very rapid. But as the levels came down to more normal level, then the, at the removal rate, the clearance rate, became very low, mm -hmm. which they, they found out in it accidentally and recognize that, wow, this is exactly what we need because you don't want to remove it all because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that's bad too. Mm -hmm. right. So then that's something that they, that they learned through the uh, process of studying this. I mean, it's a, it's a complex topic. You know, I can, uh, you know, and I'm not the right person. We need Dr. Dr. Drager, if you're watching, okay? Can you next time Skype in from Germany so that we can get you to give this talk and do your own do your own case report? But I did the best I could do with this. I hope it was all right, all right? Maybe I'll get a C plus or a B minus or something out of it. Any uh, further thoughts from anybody? Anybody in the audience have anything they want to ask or say? Nothing? Nope. Is everybody okay. ready for crawfish? Always. Okay. One, two, three, rule lane. If you want to have crawfish, Come out and visit, okay? <laughs> See y'all later.